That is the logical next question at that point. Well, if I see that this, there's a discrepancy here in terms of what is being purported to be done in the name of collective good and public health, well, if that seems fishy to me and based on what I'm seeing, then logical next question is what's the motive? Is there another motive? Is there another confounding factor that's pulling this conversation in a certain direction? That's just logical. The patients who are in the hospital getting cared for are the ones who are going to be hurt. You cannot have effective patient care in medicine without a professional sovereignty of physicians. It, it can't happen because if you're a patient and you're getting some treatment recommended to you, how do you know as a patient that the reason that's being recommended to you is merely in your best interest or all in your best interest? How do you know that that's true versus, oh, is this person doing this because there's something uh, that, he, that he or she really wants to do but can't because of some hospital constraint? You're never going to know that. The only way you're going to know that is to trust that this physician and this physician body has self-governance, has professional sovereignty, yes, collaborates with the hospital and administration, but is ultimately not controlled by administration. And that's, I mean, that's my contention. That's what this is about. This is, uh, this is not really even about COVID per se. COVID is the next vehicle in a long line of vehicles that is being run through administrations and powerful players in big hospital systems to basically purge whatever independent thinking physicians are left, whatever professionally sovereign physicians are left in those systems. That trend has been going on now for, let's just say many years. I mean, I would say at least 20 years, if not more. And this is just the latest rendition of, of that. Now, this is a particularly aggressive and egregious and fast rendition. I'm amazed at how, how fast this has happened, but this is a purge. Hello and welcome to Make Language Great Again. It is my great joy and pleasure today to welcome Venu Janapali, who is a doctor and a beautiful, brave human being. So I want to put the introduction in your own hands. So do you want to talk about yourself a little bit? Sure, Tessa, and it's quite an honor to be here. I've been watching you, following your work, and uh, your work is exquisite. So thanks for having me come and talk to you. Um, I'll, I'll just keep it short. I know we'll get into a number of topics, uh, of course, but uh, I um, born and raised in the US. My parents are from India. Um, so I kind of had the uh, first generation immigrant experience. Um, I have one foot firmly planted in Indian traditional values and one foot very firmly planted in, in American values. And um, I did all my schooling here in the States, um, ultimately went to college and then came back to Houston to do all my medical school and um, uh, post uh, medical school training. And uh, I remain here in Houston to this day. So I'm a practicing gastroenterologist, which is a, um, a subspecialty of internal medicine. Basically, um, I look after the digestive system. So um, uh, that's what I've been doing on my own in solo practice for a little over 15 years. Well, I was very impressed by your philosophy, and I really want to get into that at great depth. But first, let's get to the breaking news. So sure. you, you <laughs> filed a lawsuit. I did, yes. <laughs> so talk about it, please, because I'm sure well, many people would want yeah. to know. Yes. So um, 
the, the short backdrop of this is of course COVID, right? Um, uh, to be germane to what specifically has happened in our neck of the woods, um, we have a hospital system, Methodist, Houston Methodist, um, which is a ma- huge hospital system here. I mean, I think it's the second biggest hospital system in Houston. So it's, it, you know, it's a big player in this, in this town, which is you know, the fourth largest city in the nation. Um, uh, as we got through 2020 and, and at the end of 2020, um, Houston Methodist in December of 2020 announced that they were gonna mandate the uh, COVID vaccine for its employees. Uh, employees meaning nurses, uh, people that work at Methodist, uh, people who are on the Methodist payroll, essentially. Um, now, uh, we're not employees as physicians, um, but I'll get to that in a minute. This was for employees. So in December, Houston Methodist first said, we're going to incentivize employees to get the vaccine. I think they were going to pay, I want to say $500 um, for people to get the vaccine. Now, in that letter in December, they also said, that's not going to last. That's only going to be temporary. And, you know, come April, I think is what they said in their original letter, that's going to pass and it's going to become mandatory for the employees on penalty of termination of your job. Um, So, I mean, that was obviously a big deal. Um, And I remember when it was all going down because Houston Methodist was really the first um, major hospital system for sure, if not the first hospital system period um, in the country to actually do this for its employees. Now, now they're not the only one anymore, but they were they were they were total in in the lead on this. Um, so April rolls around, and sure enough, uh, uh, you know they announced that uh, you know the time for incentives has passed, and you know essentially here comes the stick. So we're going to now. Um, enforce this policy on our employees. And uh, I think they had a month or two to get the vaccination um, and whoever didn't was going to get fired. Um, So we as physicians were just watching and just wondering, well, wow, I mean, that's pretty uh, aggressive. Um, I wonder what they're going to do to the physicians. Um, I have privileges at Houston Methodist in addition to other hospitals in, in the city so Houston Methodist is not the only one where I have privileges. But um, in late April, uh, Methodist um, sent out another uh, uh, email uh, that said, okay, um, we're doing this to the physicians now. Um, now, interestingly, uh, Methodist itself was not doing it through its own entity. So the way Methodist wanted to handle it is to, is to actually have this go through our medical staffs. So, so every hospital system has a medical staff. That medical staff um, essentially um, governs the uh, proceedings of everybody who has privileges there in, in, as physicians. So the medical executive committees of all of the different branches of Houston Methodist, and I think there's about seven of them here, um, basically had adopted a motion that said, um, we're going to apply this policy for all uh, physicians who are, have privileges at, at, the, at our institution. Uh, so essentially, again, if the physicians did not or chose not to get the vaccine, then they would be automatically terminated from the medical staff. No questions asked, no due process, no, uh, you know, no parsing of, you know, whether you had COVID or not, just uh, you're out. Um, so, I mean, that was in late April. Uh, 
in May, we were going to have our regular quarterly medical staff meeting. And um, just before that, um, you know, completely last minute at the 11th hour, totally ramrodded, um, an email goes out essentially saying, hey, uh, by the way, there's some amendments that we uh, are uh, inserting into the, our bylaws, which is kind of like our governing documents. And these amendments were, I mean, they were so draconian that if you were to read them, um, you know, anybody who has common sense would, would have looked at that and said, wow, like this is, this is actually um, giving carte blanche for the system to essentially get rid of you for any really arbitrary reason uh, in terms of the way they had worded it. Now, of course, it was all designed in terms of enforcing this uh, COVID policy. But you know they had clauses like including but not limited to, and essentially, um, if it was considered um, against policy, whatever that policy was, um, the medical executive committee and the medical staff, by way of these amendments, would have the authority to, to terminate your privileges automatically. So we thought this was fairly egregious. Um, we raised these concerns um, uh, at the uh, at that regular medical staff meeting. Um, we were told, oh, it's this, by the, by, not by a member of the medical staff, but by essentially the part of the hospital system that these were just standard. They were just ways to realign um, these bylaws for uh, uh, the rest of the system. So it was just a way to kind of make every uh, bylaw consistent with one another. Now, of course, we felt that was nonsense, but that's how it was phrased. And then nobody else said anything at that point. There was no other, there was no other commentary. Um, so, um, I proceeded at that point, given the urgent nature of this, and I just thought this was, um, this was really, um, and, and we'll get into that in a minute, I guess, but I, I thought this was egregious. So I emailed, uh, over a thousand members of the medical staff, just oh, urging Regina, them. I, I apologize for the interruption. Can you please clarify for everybody who is listening the, the logistical differences between medical staff and employees and consultants and yeah. how it all works? Because when I learned about that system at your hospital from you, I was actually surprised. I didn't know that. So I assume many people yeah. don't have that understanding. Yeah, that's an important point. Thanks for uh, wanting having me clarify that. So Physicians, well, just it depends on what your circumstances are, but you know, in this specific situation, we as physicians are not employees. So we- now, Is it uh, specific to Texas? Um, no, it's not specific to Texas. Uh, Texas ha has a state law that um, bans the corporate practice of medicine. Now, what that means in practical terms is that in the state of Texas, it, no physician is actually an employee of, of a system. I mean, that's uh, that's- it's not technically legal for it to be that way. Now, that's not true in every state. In other states, you can have physicians be employees of a hospital system. That's just not the case in Texas. However, every hospital system in the country has physicians who have privileges at that institution, right? So many hospitals, even outside of Texas, and for, are not for, for layman, what does it mean, having privileges? Having privileges means that you know, if your patients come to the hospital, you can um, look after them. If you get consulted, I'm a gastroenterologist, so um, a hospitalist might consult me to see a patient who has some GI needs. So uh, having privileges means that 
you can be called in consultation in that way, um, or you can see patients in the hospital. Um, a, a hospital, the one way to kind of think of a hospital is that a hospital is kind of like a shell. So it's a shell where you've got physicians, you've got um, uh, technical procedures, you've got equipment, you've got you know, um, a supportive infrastructure all coming together to service people in the way of healthcare. I mean, that's what essentially a hospital is, right? Now, of course, a hospital has an administration and it has you know, a, a C-suite, a chief executive officer, it has all that. But we as physicians, when we say we have privileges, we have um, the ability to see patients in the hospital, do procedures in the hospital, order tests, uh, deliver healthcare, essentially. Um, Thank you. But, but unlike, for example, the nurses of a hospital, we're not actually employees of the hospital. In other words, we don't get a salary from the hospital. We're, we're independent physicians who have our own practices in many cases. And um, we're, we're using the infrastructure and the resources of the hospital in a collaborative way to deliver healthcare. That's what we do. Thank you, that, right. that was very helpful. And I think yeah. information is new to many people because unless you're inside the hospital, like that is kind of cryptic. Yeah. So, I mean, that distinction is going to become important in terms of, you know, what we might want to talk about regarding the lawsuit, because, you know, as opposed to the nurses who are employees of the hospital and also filed suit uh, against Houston Methodist, we, on the other hand, are not employees. Um, so because we're not employees, what we are governed by essentially is the bylaws of the medical staff. Because the medical staff means you know, all the physicians who have privileges at that particular hospital system. So those bylaws are basically our constitution, if you will. Um, they have policies, they, they, uh, they have enforcement mechanisms, they have ways of, you know, like a legislative branch creating policies, I and mean, that's what the bylaws stipulate. Um, so after this, you know, regular staff meeting, um, I went ahead and, and sent emails out to over a thousand physicians who were on the medical staff at, at uh, this particular branch of Houston Methodist. And I said, look, um, all I'm asking y'all to do is just look at these amendments. Um, they, they are very aggressive. Uh, and I said, you really ought to be looking at this carefully because if we, um, if this vote for these amendments pass, then I mean, whatever independence that we have left um, as a, a self-governing, professionally sovereign body is going to be gone. Um, I did that uh, overnight. And overnight, I started getting email after email after email of physicians privately emailing me that, first of all, a lot of people were thanking me for calling this to their attention. You know, this is one of these things where, you know, many physicians are just, they're so busy, their nose is to the ground, they're taking care of patients. So they don't they don't even look at the amendments sometimes. But um, in this case, uh, that email that I sent out, um, uh, 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 people gave me feedback that they were appreciative that I, I, I called it to their attention. But then I also got email after email after email of physicians saying, I, I can't say anything. I can't speak up about this, even though I totally agree with what you're saying, because I've, I have fear of retaliation, of reprisal by the system if I actually speak up about this or if I vote no on these amendments. By the way, the, the vote, 
we have certain procedures in the bylaws in terms of how things like this ought to be done. Um, the, 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 normally speaking, you know, you, you have a meeting, you have a quorum, you know, you, you, somebody passes a motion, all in favor say aye. I mean, that's how these things go. Um, in this case, um, the vote was to be held on a Google form electronically. You had to put your identification number on there. So it wasn't an anonymous vote. And it was like a little over 24 hours in terms of the time period of voting. And, and that was that, which I thought was, 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 was ridiculous. I mean, I, I mean, I, I've used these Google Forms uh, to uh, set up, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, booths at uh, 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 farmers markets, not to vote on the entire amendments uh, codifying such a draconian thing for our medical staff. So, so many people responded and said, "Look, I can't say anything. I mean, I, 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 I fear that uh, uh, I cannot actually speak my mind." And when I started getting these back, I just thought, I mean, when you have physicians op, uh, practicing in a culture where they can't speak up, they can't speak their mind, even if they, even if we all disagree, and we disagree on stuff all the time, I mean, that is a that there's something systemically very, very wrong about a culture like that. And I'm and I and I, the reality is, and this is why this is so important. I think on a national and even an international level that many hospital systems are like this at this point. Many hospital systems have gotten to the point where physicians of different backgrounds, different persuasions, different belief systems, different frameworks, do not feel free and open to have an exchange about topics as momentous and substantive as COVID, for example, or a vaccine or a mandatory vaccine. So, as I got to understand this is what's going on, I mean, it kind of, you know, confirmed to me what I felt was happening around me amongst my colleagues. So I set up a, a listserv, a mailing list of all of us. And I said, basically, here are the rules. We get to have free and open exchange for all topics relevant to the medical staff. And we've been having those um, exchanges for about the past uh, two months or so. Um, but the issue has become that because the culture is so tight, because it's so constricted, the answers that I'm looking to get in terms of how was this done, how did this all go down, who conducted the vote, what exchanges were had between physicians on the medical staff, hospital systems, which you can have a collaborative relationship, but a, an administration cannot coerce or dictate what a hospital staff does, meaning medical staff. That's not allowed. So as I was asking those questions or, or, or posing them to the listserv at large, I, I wouldn't get any answers, uh, particularly from the, from the leadership uh, among the medical staff, which is essentially what compelled me at this point to file a suit. So the lawsuit that uh, I filed was a lawsuit against uh, the medical staff in that the mechanism by which we ought to have these discussions and have these votes is actually not being followed according to our own bylaws. So of course, COVID is, is, is part and parcel of the entire process and the, and the vaccination and, and, and what 
how mandatory vaccines ought to work in a hospital system. But it, th this lawsuit is substantively different from the lawsuit that you may have heard was filed by the nurses um, at Houston Methodist because that was a lawsuit with regard to their relationship as employer-employee. So that's, you know, that's running its own course. But our, our issue is um, it's really about self-governance, the prof professional sovereignty of physicians, and, 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 and the larger implications of what that means, especially as these decisions uh, continue to come down the pike, because this is not going to end. Well, of course, I have so much to say in response. And then I obviously want to hear so much more, both about the lawsuit and about the culture. And But while we're staying on the topic of breaking news, I know that you were suspended because of the mandatory shot. So do you want to talk about it? Do you want to expand on that event? Sure. So, I mean, um, you know, on many principles, uh, I decided that... Um, I was going to fight this. Um, and I was specifically fighting this idea of mandatory vaccination as a rote policy, you know, on penalty of automatic termination of, of, your, of or your livelihood, of your clinical privileges. So in the process of that fight, um, uh, you know, I did not take the vaccine uh, because I, I mean, I think that there is, are ways to mitigate risk that's, that go beyond taking vaccine. Um, so you know, in line with the enforcement of this policy, uh, I was suspended. So that's, that's my official status right now, just suspended from uh, the, the privileges. And, you know, that suspension is ultimately going to lead to automatic termination. Um, I, I don't know exactly when that's going to happen, but um, these are uh, as per uh, the enforcement of this policy by way of uh, amendments, which I'm contending were... Um, uh, uh, not legitimately passed. So that's my status as, as, as of now. Well, you're an extremely brave human being and I admire you and I admire your principal stance on this. And I am personally appalled and resentful of the fact that out of all people, doctors and scientists are being silenced. I mean, nobody should be, be, be silenced. I mean, that's a given. But when people with proper training in science and in medicine cannot express any kind of contrary opinion without fearing for their careers or fearing for their income or for their ability to feed the family. And then the general public gets an idea that there is a consensus on a given topic just because people are actually afraid to talk. And I've talked to other people, so I'm very familiar with that sentiment of doctors being afraid to open their mouth and say something that does not confirm the official narrative. And that's frightening. Because, I mean, like, that's a direct right to hell. And so I just want to register my full support of your cause. And, and I think it just proves that paying attention to signs that pertain to culture, philosophy, and emotion, and maybe spiritual matters even, it is important. And the fact that our society trains us to snooze on those signs mm -hmm. until it's straight in our faces I think we are going to soon find out, hopefully in the kindest way. I mean, that's my hope. Hopefully we'll find out in the kindest way. But we're going to find out that that's important. And amazingly, a number of very good people are still, I think what feels to me like in denial of this trend, 
And especially yeah. if there's such massive wall of propaganda that is so well crafted and so well funded and so comprehensive and hits us at every level from our respectable newspapers, from our respectable television programs. People don't know that there are many people who think otherwise and they just, they're afraid to talk. That's striking. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing to me. I mean, that is one of the main things that I want to convey to all those who are listening here now is that, you know, we as physicians and healthcare professionals in general, I mean, we're almost like the canaries in the coal mine of this particular issue. Um, and, you know, the fact that we can't actually have free and open exchange and be able to um, debate various points and still have collegiality and respect one another, which is something we, we're so used to doing. It's part of our professional culture. I mean, that's, I mean, that's the tradition of medicine, I would argue. Um, I mean, I remember um, I, I had a mentor um, who um, you know, taught us as gastro fellows. Um, he's like the world's leader in a bug called H. pylori or Helicobacter pylori. It's a bug that lives in the stomach. Um, and, and we know now for, I guess, the past 40 years or so that that bug is actually a cause of ulcers. We didn't know that prior to, to the early 80s. We thought other things caused ulcers, but we realized, oh, it's a bug in the stomach that can cause ulcers. Now, that was, um, <laughs> that was not well accepted at all, uh, uh, you know, to, to say the least, up until around the mid-80s or so. Um, there was one guy named Barry Marshall, who is an Australian physician, who's the one that really championed this hypothesis that, oh, it's not actually stress that causes ulcers per se, it's actually a bacterial infection that lives in the stomach. And there's a famous uh, uh, story, which is true, of him actually swallowing a, a batch of H. pylori to essentially prove through Cox postulates that H. pylori can cause ulceration, which sure enough it did. Now, legend has it that when he presented this at our you know big um, annual meeting of the gastroenterology uh, doctors around the world. I think this was, again, in the early 80s. Um, my former boss got up there after he did his presentation to the audience of, you know, hundreds, maybe thousand, and chewed him out and said, like, this is nonsense. I don't believe anything that you're saying. You haven't proven anything. Here's why A, B, C, D, and E, Right. And of course, I, whatever, a few years later, um, my guy, my boss, uh, former boss, is now fully accepting of it, and he's the world's leader in it. So, I mean, that's how science works. I mean, science gives a cylinder in which somebody can put forward a hypothesis. No, that's nonsense. Um, here's why. Uh, here's what I think you need to do better. Here's what I would need to actually accept your hypothesis. And that just, that just goes back and forth, back and forth. That's, that's the nature of free and open exchange. When you have a culture in which there is fear of having that type of free and open exchange, where a person can vehemently disagree with one another regarding the evidence, the injunction, how that evidence was reached, what your conclusions are, but still have a collegial relationship and still work with one another, when that starts to deteriorate in the world of medicine, that's a huge problem at that point. And the people that's going to affect the most, and this is what I've, I've insisted on or, or really emphasized over and over again with my colleagues, is that it's the patients that are going to be hurt the most. 
when you have a hospital system and an administration that is behind the scenes coercing and compelling physicians in an institution or, or, or affiliated with an institution to think in a certain way and not be able to fluidly and flexibly uh, talk to one another. The patients who are in the hospital getting cared for are the ones who are going to be hurt. You cannot have effective patient care in medicine without a professional sovereignty of physicians. It, it can't happen. Because if you're a patient and you're getting some treatment recommended to you, how do you know as a patient that the reason that's being recommended to you is merely in your best interest or all in your best interest? How do you know that that's true versus, oh, is this person doing this because there's some equipment issues at the hospital or there's something uh, that, he, that he or she really wants to do but can't because of some hospital constraint? You're never going to know that. The only way you're going to know that is to trust that this physician and this physician body has self-governance, has professional sovereignty, yes, collaborates with the hospital and administration, but is ultimately not controlled by administration. And that's, I mean, that's my contention. That's what this is about. This is, uh, this is not really even about COVID per se. COVID is the next vehicle in a long line of vehicles that is being run through administrations and powerful players in big hospital systems to basically purge whatever independent thinking physicians are left, whatever professionally sovereign physicians are left in those systems. That trend has been going on now for, let's just say many years. I mean, I would say at least 20 years, if not more. And this is just the latest rendition of, of that. Now, this is a particularly aggressive and egregious and fast rendition. I'm amazed at how how fast this has happened. But this is a purge, plain and simple. I was reading a few years ago a book by Nicholas Carr. Uh, he was writing about, well, he wrote several books that are extremely interesting uh, about the impact of technology and the philosophy of Googles of the world upon all of us. And in that particular book, he was writing about automation and how various algorithms, not just from the technological standpoint, but also from the philosophical standpoint, how algorithmic thinking and formulas were ultimately going to harm us. And he was specifically talking about doctors uh, in a situation where gradually a doctor was becoming uh, a person. Well, originally the doctor would have an understanding of the entire patient and view the, the patient as a whole. Then with advent of different algorithms, the doctor would become ultimately kind of like an appendix to a computer program. If the doctor followed the algorithm, then no big deal as far as legal consequences. But if the doctor chose to do something that was contradicting the algorithm, then the doctor would be in big trouble, which would, of course, inspire most doctors to stick with a safe route and would gradually even untrain the doctors. Almost the doctors would lose that ability to gradually, culturally, over maybe like a decade or a generation, they would lose the ability to even mm. think from the inside. And yeah. he was talking about that years ago. And as this was happening aggressively, as you, as you mentioned, this, is, this seems like the circumstance is special, but the trend is very old. Um, that's another huge topic in the world of medicine. I mean, everything that this author says and you're saying now is the case. Um, the electronic medical record system uh, 
really went, you know, total, total uh, full on around 2008, 2009. It was a passage of an act called the High Tech Act. It, you know, it came during the Obama administration. Um, now, of course, I mean, computer systems were automating things in medicine uh, well before that. But that really accelerated the progress. It accelerated in this one fundamental way. This is when all of these electronic medical record systems really came in, not only into the hospital uh, systems, but also into the systems of, patient, of, of physicians' offices uh, all around the country. Now, I mean, I'm as wired as it gets. I mean, I, I, I love tech in many ways. I know you do too. Um, you know, we have that those common backgrounds in tech. Um, I'm an you know, amateur programmer. Um, I, I have my own electronic medical record system. I've never even had paper charts since I started my practice. Um, but I quickly realized that you have to use the technology in a very mm, honorable way. I mean, because otherwise it will take over your entire uh, workflow. It'll take over your entire office and it will essentially make you into a robot which is, you know, what I love about your old blog, you know, because oh, I hate robots, right? I mean, so this roboticization of medical thinking and medical decision-making has been going on for a while. And the electronic medical record system has, ha has really accelerated that trend. And it's gotten so bad that, you know, if you go to uh, any hospital system, I mean, you, uh, they're all automated now, or uh, they're all electronic now. And you know, the notes are like 20 pages long, people are copying and pasting, and you have to scroll through a bunch of noise essentially to try to get the signal that you're looking for. And so, I mean, that's, that's part of a larger trend, right? It's not just in medicine. I mean, this is big data, big tech. Then you got Silicon Valley coming in and all their monopolistic players. So that, that's happening in full force in healthcare, but it's also happening in education. It's also happening in, in, in government. It's also happening in, in, in pharma. It's, it's also happening in um, um, many other fields, right? So this idea of big data, big medicine, number crunching, artificial intelligence, machine learning, there's an entire framework around this that says like, this is actually the evolution of us. This is the evolution of good medicine. This is the evolution of good healthcare. And I think that that's a partial truth, but when it is taken to its extreme end, it is the end of medicine. It's actually the end of the, of the, of the taking of some generalities and then particularizing it to that patient. So when I have a patient in front of me, I mean, I can definitely have evidence-based medicine in me. I'm evidence-informed, but not evidence-enslaved. So I have to take the knowledge at a population-based level, which has gotten to the point where, you know, no one person can carry it. And that's where technology can be useful, right? But then you have to actually particularize it to that patient who is sitting in front of you, who has a unique situation, a unique scenario, a unique immune system, a unique family, a unique set of characteristics, a unique risk factors. And then you have to ask like, does this thing at a general level apply to that person? That's the uniqueness of what we do, right? And, and, and that is still, that is not something that can be AI'd. And that's where, uh, that's where a human being actually comes into play. There are a lot of other things that can be um, automated in a sense, but not that. that, and that's crucial. So that is in one major sense what I am fighting in this whole issue of mandatory vaccination, right? Which is 
you've got this general principle of vaccination. And, you know, people have differing opinions on that. But then you have this, this, this add-on of mandating that general principle. And, and that, that's where my line was drawn, right? So it's important to, to, to make sure we're not conflating various issues because it's so easy to do that. There's the issue of vaccination itself. Do you, do you have issues with vaccination or, or, or not, no issues with vaccination? Then there's the issue of mandatory vaccination, which is another layer on top of just vaccination. And then there's an issue of who gets to decide about mandatory vaccination, right? Is it the medical staff? Is it some other authority? Who actually has you know, what's called the epistemic authority, meaning I mean, who actually gets to decide these things? Should it be only healthcare uh, professionals? Are we the only experts that have this opinion? I don't think so, because this is going to affect entire societies all around the world. So there's so many different levels at which to have this discussion and to conflate it all in some technocratic, automated, robotically driven, uh, toxic stew, I think is just wrong. It's just, it's just, it's, it's immoral to do it that way. Well, I agree that it's immoral. And I think that the, the, the very important thing here is that the algorithm, the technical algorithm, the computer, the AI, that is actually a mechanism. Behind that AI, there's a human being or a group of human beings or some human beings who are not connected to each other who actually want it to happen this way. And this is something I thought about a lot when I was doing my own research into big tech, which I've done for years, and transhumanism and all those things that sounded like a horrible things that may happen sometime after my lifetime. So it never really felt real intellectually or emotionally until last year when things started happening really fast. Seemingly, there is a very, very, very coordinated marketing behind all that. And the conflation and the confusion, seemingly, they're not just a result of, say, ignorance or natural confusion or natural inertia, which are all factors, obviously, because life is extremely complex. So, but it is fascinating how philosophy is put at the service of economic interests. Mm. That is actually like really, really interesting if you think about it in a even in a mechanical manner, because all those trends of making people essentially practical slaves of the algorithm are really good for anybody who manages this algorithm and gets profits from it. And there is a philosophical aspect, there is a spiritual aspect, but also anybody who owns intellectual property to the algorithm obviously wants everybody to believe that it is the best way to go in a way that is evolutionary or practically or but it's sometimes a con is just a con and I just really miss that world that reality that right now is an alternative reality where people can look at something that is a con and just laugh at it mm -hmm. without going into a five million lucrative words that are fancy that can be turned into theses about like the future of this or the future of that or blah, yeah. blah, blah. It's like sometimes a con is just a con. And, <laughs> and unfortunately, sometimes people find out in the worst way. And I keep thinking, you know, even I'm in New York. So obviously last spring it was chaotic. And I'm actually not convinced that the case was natural. But regardless of that, 
I'm just thinking about a story of a person who in full trust went to the hospital and then was subjected to, well, let's say medical mismanagement. I'm not saying that the doctor's fault, the doctor might have been misled. But if somebody was put in a ventilator and died because of all those factors that are philosophical or medical or they didn't get the right treatment, uh, that is reality. That person is dead. Yeah. And when I think about it, you know, as if I'm looking back, say, from the future, I'm writing a history thesis. And then I'm describing the situation in which, due to massive chaos, people were subjected to massive medical mismanagement that was not discovered until much later. And everybody thought it was because of this and everybody was scared. And there was this reality that existed in people's head that motivated them to accept certain things or to believe certain things. And it was all based on just, you know, mismanagement is mismanagement. It's very different from like tragic, tragic biological reality that like we can treat. Mm -hmm. And again, people have different opinions about all of that. But ultimately, I'm just, I'm thinking about this person who maybe was successful, lived the entire life with certain values and priorities. And then one day that person is in a hospital, isolated from family, like trapped, and somebody chooses to put them on the ventilator because for whatever reason, they, they don't know better or they're not allowed to treat them differently for whatever reason. And that's that. And, and that's the ultimate reality. And then that story sounds almost like, you know, what you would see in a horror film, mm -hmm. that complete loneliness, complete yeah. facing the machine face to face, and there's nobody to protect you. And how many people actually had to face that last year? And the old people locked in the nursing homes. I mean, like that just breaks my heart because all that is real. And then it starts sounding really like a horror film when on the one hand, we have this person murdered by the machine essentially. And then the newspapers are printing a story that is entirely different. That is the epitome of a horror story an ultimate betrayal of a human being by the machine. And that is no longer abstract philosophy. I've been thinking about those matters since I was a kid, probably because of you know, World War II and growing up on mm. movies about again, World War II and the Nazis. And I was thinking about what I would do. And now it seems like it is playing out. And it's not new for last year because it has been done on a far more massive scale than what we believed before, as far as, like, for instance, this society has no respect for all people, really. And so people live their lives like American dream or whatever, like the, the illusion of an American dream, depending on the situation. And But there's still values and there's certain perceptions and certain successes and kind of prime time, party, like money, like all that. It's all pleasant. It's all wonderful. But then people become old and they're tossed like an empty shell mm. and hidden from the view and their opinions are no longer valid and they're uncool. Like at best, they are somewhat like financially secure and but but like they're not respected by the society they are the ridiculous picture of a funny grandma on a hallmark part postcard there's no respect but then yeah. nobody sees them and the society was doing that before but now it just became significantly worse and i just keep thinking about the journey of a human being who had certain ideas certain values certain ego standards certain standards of being respected and then reaching a certain point, 
and finding out that nobody ever cared. Yeah. And that's just so sad. I mean, that's just so painful. I mean, <laughs> it is very painful. That, that's why I'm, I'm just kind of pausing here. And you know, you, you're, a, you're a linguistic expert, right? So there's this repainting of all of these, you know, sublime words. Like, like this, you know, this hospital system has these I care values. And I, I you know, there's compassion, integrity, excellence, and a, a few others that I'm, I'm blanking on. But I mean, those are, those are really the mission statements of this hospital system. They have it in their gardens. Um, they profess them all the time. So, I mean, you want to believe that they actually um, uphold these particular values, right? And so one of them is compassion. And I mean, last year, you had people going into the hospital, as you said, um, dying alone. And this hospital system uh, puts out this video of, of definitely well-meaning nursing, nursing staff, um, basically uh, showing the, the audience a day in the life of the nursing staff in the, in the midst of COVID. And this was really, I think, kind of early on. So it was, you know, it was, it was before we, we had better uh, ideas about how to treat um, people who have bad illness. And I, I was just struck by it because, I mean, they were chronicling the life of an elderly person who had gotten COVID and was in the hospital admitted. And, you know, they said that they had done everything that they could and he was dying. And, and this was at a time where, you know, visitors weren't allowed. So they were doing the whole Zoom thing with, you know, all of his uh, sons and daughters and grandkids and great grandkids. And I mean, I, I was thinking to myself, I mean, I'm an insider, right? I know that there's a way to have, you know, one human ability for that family to say goodbye to their loved one. I mean, but, but you create this condition in which you feel you're practicing compassion by, by, by creating the circumstance where, where you have some TV screen um, saying goodbye to that family member. I mean, I understand you don't want to spread disease. I, I get it. I understand you know, wh why you were doing what you were doing. But I mean, for us to be so uncreative that we can't come up with a way that that person can uh, say goodbye or that family member can say goodbye to that person, um, I mean, I, I was so disgusted by that video because it's a, like, to me, it was like a con job. You, you, you said the right word. It was, it was like, let's show how good we are in this hospital system. Let, let's show how caring we are and compassionate we are. And the way it what felt in me was just disgust. I was just like, how can we as healthcare professionals, as healers, how can we actually accept that this is how somebody can pass from this world. I mean, it's just, it's, 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 it's abhorrent to me that we set up these conditions in which people can't say their proper goodbyes. I mean, I, I, was, I was thinking like that family, I mean, I, I was kind of putting myself into the shoes of that family and I was asking myself, my gosh, if I were that family member, I just want to have 
the hospital just signed that person out. We have something called against medical advice or AMA. So you can actually sign out a person and just, you know, sign off medical legally saying, you know, discharge my, my uh, family member or discharge me, and I'm going to do it against medical advice. So that's what I, I, I probably would have done that. I probably just said, look, if you're not going to allow us to say goodbye in person to my father or my mother or my grandfather, then just sign him out and we'll take care of him and, and we'll, we'll do whatever is necessary so that, so that we can say goodbye with dignity. I mean, you brought up these nursing home patients. and I mean, I call them patients, but nursing home residents. Um, I mean, what kind of dignity did they have when they, were, when they were dying alone? I mean, it just breaks my heart that they would just die there alone. I just, there's no dignity in that. And that's what we've lost in all of this, all of this algorithmic way of thinking about things. Where is the dignity? Where is the human dignity of all this? It's just, I mean, it's just wrong. It is, well, there's really no good words to express really the feeling that is appropriate in, in this situation. And, the, you know, the slippery slope is something that I'm thinking about this very second because all this, the degree of like anti-human cruelty that was happening in nursing homes, for instance, or in the situation of letting people die alone in the hospital. But that's just the culmination of a smaller indignity, of a smaller self-betrayal. And to me, a lot of it boils down to actual self-betrayal. And see, I recognize the Soviet spirit of the machine, that fear of loving a human being more than a system. And I'm sure people didn't think about it in that terminology, but nonetheless, parents were doing it to their children. And I'm not immune to that either, because I remember actually at some point, uh, several years ago, I was taking my mom somewhere and we were supposed to stand in a particular line to put some kind of an official thing. And she didn't. And I almost got irritated. I was like, mom, can't you, can't you? Like, and then I caught myself and I was thinking, oh my God, like that's a robot in me. And I felt so ashamed. And I thought, well, I mean, like I caught that and I tried not to do that later, but it doesn't mean that this thing is dead. It just means that I have to watch out. But that is the same principle. You know, sometimes it's really small and it's harmless somewhat. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't kill anybody. But then when, it, when it's unchecked, it goes to a place where people are murdered. Mm. And speaking of nursing homes, this is something that I have not looked into in detail, probably because I don't want to see if I, you know, if I, if I look into that in detail. But I was reading some reports that they were pretty much euphonizing some of those people because instead of treating them they would give them a combination of drug they would overdrug them essentially and from what i hear that was a practice before covid where instead of dealing with annoying old people they would just sedate them overly sedate them consistently they would be pretty much sedated all the time and then they would eventually pass but if we describe it in the direct language as in calling a spade a spade. So if it is true, which based on what I read is, but again, I didn't look into that in depth. If we had in our society covert 
euthanasia of older people in nursing home, and that's just what happened. Then how do we even live with us? I mean, like how how like what mm-hmm. what is this? Like yeah. what is it all about? What kind of world are we in? And then we yeah. just carry on, and then we plus them to the COVID deaths and then whatever base policy on that. That is yeah. just ultimate. That is murder of the soul. That is murder of what it means to mm-hmm. be human. Yeah. Yeah. There's so there's so many players here. Like I. You know, there, I, I, I'm reminded of, you know, a one of my colleagues. Um, I mean, he knows me. I know him um, just because of mutual interactions uh, on a personal level. So he, I respect him. He respects me. He's an, he's, a, he's an intensivist, meaning he's a critical care doc. And um, he, I mean, he's obviously disagreeing with me and, and my, my stance on a number of things, but you know, one of the things that he raised was that was this was was basically you know all the suffering that he had been through in all of 2020, looking after people who were dying in the ICU, and and in a very fundamental sense, he was saying, "Look, um, I'm tired. I'm tired of your diatribes because I saw all this suffering, and I got to do something about it." And this is, you know, our best effort of doing something about it. And, you know, he, he was almost begging me to take my, my uh, exchange somewhere else, like somewhere where he doesn't necessarily have to endure this exchange. Now, of course, he can always opt out whenever he wants to. And, you know, he knows that, obviously. But he wanted to stay in the exchange because he respects me. Um, I mean, presumably that that's, that is the reason I have every reason to believe that. And I respect him, but he was getting tired of it and he was getting tired of it because, because of the suffering that he had gone through and, and the feeling that, well, this is the only way out of that suffering. And I tell you, there's, I would say he's not alone. There are a number of my colleagues who feel that the only way out of this suffering is to, is to go down this road of, you know, vaccinations, even mandatory vaccinations worldwide. So, I mean, my response to that was, I mean, I feel your suffering. And I, I, I mean, you as a critical care doctor have certainly viscerally been involved with that suffering more than I have as a gastroenterologist. So I, I, do, I will never discount the level of suffering that you have witnessed. Now, if I feel that that suffering did not need to occur in the way that it did because we had suppression of information that would have mitigated that suffering, I mean, that is also suffering to, in the sense of like, what's the truth? I just want the truth. I, I, I don't feel that this was the, the only way to come out of this. I, 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 and so, I mean, when you feel that information and your ability to make decisions as a medical professional has been distorted and perverted because of a suppression of, of science and hypotheses and collaboration and camaraderie. If you feel that's being suppressed because of con jobs, because of profiteering, I mean, that's gonna change and reshape how you hold the suffering. And, and, and that's, 
And, and nobody should be shamed for that. There should be no shame in actually having that um, as part of how you respond to this thing that's, you know, that's been going on since 2020 and, and, and you know, going forward. So, I mean, I want to totally honor the suffering that we have been through. Because sometimes, you know, that gets a little bit lost, like, oh, this is, you know, whatever, it's not, uh, it's not as bad as people say it is. And I, I, there's definitely been suffering. At the same time, especially in the medical world, you want to have every tools available in your toolkit to be able to help the suffering. That's what we do. And when you see that that's not occurring and you see that there, you could just feel it. You could feel a pull of gravity that, that there's ulterior motives here behind the scenes by administrations and powerful centralized consolidated hospital systems. They are hiding stuff. They are distorting the truth. They are holding things back and they're using the medical staff to do it. It makes me, that's what makes me angry. There should be no shame in people in, for people in realizing that they have been calmed. Because I think the reason why a lot of people are in denial about it is because, especially if somebody is well-trained, like a doctor or well-educated person or self-perceived, you know, respectable intellectual, assuming, I, I do believe that most people are honest on the inside, like not obviously not everybody, but well, the denial is very similar to the denial of an abused person. And, you know, like I've been through that, so I know it from the inside that I think it is natural to be in denial up until the point where it, it becomes impossible. And from me, I would like to extend love and full embrace of the people who, you know, maybe they were conned up until now. And now as new information comes in, it starts seeming like things are not what we were told or not quite what we were told. And I think that it, it is actually honorable to accept new information and maybe reconsider or consider different explanation of what the person used to believe was the case. And I think it's a normal human way of learning. And honestly, I also, I just want the truth. Like if I were given an absolutely irrefutable set of proof that everything that I believed in the past year, despite the fact that, you know, it brought me some writing and some, you know, popularity or whatever, like blah, blah, blah. So despite all that, if I turned out to be completely entirely wrong and everything is exactly like the mainstream says, and if I, I were just given absolute, like proof that I know is true, I would gladly change my mind. I fear that it's not going to happen because it's just not the case. But like, I think it's normal for a human being to be of a certain opinion based on life experience and instinct and facts and a combination of all that. And then if something is different, then okay, then we change our mind. And that was a very long-winded way of saying that I think for the doctors and for you know, respectable career people, even if they have been duped for a year and a half to varying degrees, there's no shame in accepting new facts when they become undeniable or considering alternative opinions. And I'm thinking that uh, 
Well, if you're a scholar, I mean, like abstract you, if you're a scholar or a doctor or researcher or a scientist, and you find out that there was this great suppression of information, including, you know, information uh, put uh, forward by people maybe you respect, I mean, that should make you think. Like I would think that should at least put questions in your head, as in, why is that? Because even without any corruption, I think it's pretty typical for if you have 10 scientists in the room and assuming they're all honest and have no conflict of interest, they might have 10 different explanations for the same thing. Mm -hmm. And some might be more correct as far as physical reality goes and some not, but they should be allowed to discuss it. And if there's an invisible hand that only allows certain types of opinions to be expressed. And it just so happens that those types of opinions are extremely lucrative to a particular industry, for example. I mean, that seems like one doesn't have to be an extraordinary detective to start thinking thoughts. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's not a conspiracy theory, by the way. I mean, that's been happening, uh, you know, for for as long as, people have these motivations. And you're right. I mean, you can have 10 um, scientists, physicians in the room and have 10 different opinions. But then the other layer on top of that, which you're alluding to is, are we just disagreeing with one another? Or are we actually being coerced and uh, propagandized to move in a certain direction that an oligarchy actually wants us to move to. That's something else altogether. I would say so. And I mean, like that's something else I think was present in our lives to a large degree before. Like for instance, I started reading about various cancer research and alternative cancer research. And I found out about things like a prominent physician of back, back, back when, when, when tobacco was cool. Uh, using a tagline, a pack a a a day keeps a doctor away, meaning a pack of cigarettes. And I was like, wow, I mean, that's nice. And it seems so obvious looking back at it, you know, looking, being in a time machine, looking at that from our perspective right now, it seems so Mm -hmm. obvious. Yeah, of course they were corrupt. Like, yeah, of course. I mean, they were just using physicians. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's not not like there hasn't been precedent for an industry to use physicians to promote what they want. (laughs) There is precedent for that. So I was talking to a friend of mine who is in her 60s. And so when her mom was pregnant with her, her mom was actually recommended to smoke by the doctor. And allegedly that was a thing back then. Because pregnant women were expected, they were told to smoke because it would calm them down. And then when they started figuring out that there were complications from there, they would start giving them drug well, I mean, they were still recommended to smoke, but they were also prescribed a drug against the side effects from smoking. But the drug later turned out to have side effects also. That's the story she told me. And I don't remember the details, but it seems like medicine has always been a little bit under the influence of... Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, and... You know, if we're honest with ourselves as physicians, I mean, we, we, we recognize that, right? I mean, like, I think it's good for all of us in the field to have various checks and balances on ourselves, like just in terms of, you know, taking care of patients. Like I, this, I mean, we're taught this, um, that 
you know, I may have a certain um, differential diagnosis, meaning like I think it's either A, B, or C, but I don't want to have tunnel vision on it. And so I need to keep my mind flexible enough to where if I have new information that I can't quite fit in that particular list, then I have to reassess that list. And then, and then that's a constant dynamic uh, process that's not, you know, just in my uh, 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 authority. It's, it, that's the two-way street. I mean, that's the patient-doctor relationship. The, the relationship that you have back and forth where new information comes in, new aspects, new dynamics, and then you adjust your um, decision-making, sense-making, and then ultimately your recommendations on the basis of that. That's a, that's a dynamic, continual exchange. And so, I mean, that's part of our, that's part of our discipline. And so, and so I, that should be, in my mind, applied to you know, just about anything that we're being told by any public body who is saying that they have our best interests in terms of in terms of public health, I mean, I, I mean, I've had these these. Uh, uh, I mean, it didn't reach the point of argument, but I, I've had these debates um, intra-family with, with with people who are all about mostly all doctors, by the way. It's like I mean, like I know how to read papers. I, I I know how to I know how to assess confidence intervals. So I mean, I can go to the source material myself. Um, I'll. I'll I'll listen to what the CDC or the NIH and WHO has to say, and then I can go to the source material and you know uh, assess something to 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 my uh, understanding, and, and then and then try to collate and piece it all together. And then and then I also have the ability and the capacity to say, hey, um, what's the history of the WHO? What do they say about uh, you know Fukushima? What do they say about Chernobyl? And, you know, could there be politics involved? I mean, this is part of the open, in some sense, skeptical exchange that I think you have to have as a scientist. And, and, and so for, for, for someone to say in the medical field that, oh, no, no, we just need to follow what the CDC and the WHO say. And the NIH says, says I mean, this is our domain. Why would I do that? I'm a physician. So it, 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 it's, it's striking to me that, that my that you know many of my colleagues will, will will just will just kind of absolve their our our responsibility our our sacred obligation in this discipline to say okay I'm going to take what I'm being told and assess it based on my own faculties because I was trained that way. It just so happens that I also grew up in the family of doctors and. Actually, my mom dreamed of me to become a doctor, but I really, I mean, I didn't fancy it. So it didn't go that way. I didn't even try. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, my mom was a doctor, well, retired now, and my grandmother was a doctor. And so my grandma, somebody wanted to test a specific new drug on her. And she was refused painkillers because that drug was giving her absolutely horrendous side effects. So somebody, a doctor, had the soullessness to essentially tell her that either you take this or no painkiller for you. And that was after, I mean, like that was just how, I mean, like how does a human being even live with oneself after doing something wow. like that? And so I am fairly 
I don't want to use the word cynical, but I'm not idealistic as far as like the ideals of medicine versus the, you know, the practice. Mm. And I know that like in the example of my mom, who's retired now, but she is extremely conscientious, right? And she, she's old school. So the way they were trained, doctors could identify things almost with their ears. I mean, mm. it's like, you know, she's a cardiologist and they, they were so trained she, how she, to- she had, the, she had the bat ears. Right. I mean, like how to identify it. And I don't know. I mean, like, I, I don't know the details because I'm not a doctor, but they, they were trained back in that generation before yeah. the computers came in. They knew a lot right. of things by just like physical and knowing right. how this rhythm sounds and all that. Well, that's now gone, right? Like yeah. nobody knows how to do that. It's the, the thorough approach is gone. And a part of which you could say it's the machine or the capitalism or whatever, because it's all for profits and the big hospitals. So you're like in, out, in, out, in, out, money, 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 money. I mean, like, but, but people are still people. I mean, I would never believe that the majority of doctors just accept the cruelty because whatever, because they're greedy. I don't think so, because I think people go into this profession, the majority of people, because they have something on the inside and they want to help. Mm -hmm. And the big lie that people are subjected to when information is withheld or when education is impacted by the pharma industry or people who are sitting above the education and the pharma industry. I mean, that's, that all needs to be taken into consideration when it comes to the fate of a patient. And then actually more about my mom, you know, when, when she was in the hospital here, I, I had idealistic ideas about American hospitals and I thought, <laughs> you know, from we broke, we broke it, didn't we? No, I mean, I had those ideas like from seeing 15 minutes of ER television show yeah. where if anything happens, everybody runs and like this, everything works like a clock, like this perfect thing with perfect <laughs> technology and everybody attentive. And I have to say, they were really wonderful people there, like some of them. And the surgeons were amazing. Like some of the physicians were amazing. But at the same time, it was such, pardon me, fucking mess. As far as nurses didn't know that she had a surgery. They were nurses checking their phones and going back into the wound, mm -hmm. like in their hands that just touched the phone. I was horrified. I was literally scared to leave for one second for the fear of her life. And that was a good hospital. And that was before COVID. Mm -hmm. And that just scarred me. I mean, like I'm stressing myself out now as I'm thinking about it, because if that was at a good hospital with genuinely benevolent, genuinely good people, actually a doctor on duty did not know how to turn on the heart monitor. I had to show them, I had to show him and he was not a cardiologist given, but nonetheless, if I weren't there, I mean, like what? What? <laughs> If that was before COVID, that was before panic, before general coercion and, you know, trying to block certain treatments. If that was before, one can only imagine with all the fear and sincere fear on the part of the staff too, that, but why don't, why aren't we talking about that when we talk about what happened in 2020? Because things are not, they do not exist in isolation. It's all in context. Yeah. I mean, that, so that, that aspect of medicine 
and in particular hospital medicine in America, so this is the, this is the specific thing that you've raised, that's something I've been railing on for years, <laughs> before, well before COVID. I mean, it, you know, there, there's that oft-repeated stat that, you know, medical error is, you know, the third largest uh, cause of death, right? I mean, there was the Institute of Medicine came out with that study in the 90s. And then, you know, it, it, in various permutations, it's been repeated over and over again. Now, you can argue the numbers and whether it's actually as high as they say it is. But regardless, medical error occurs. It's real. I've seen it many times. It happens every day of the week at every hospital all around the country. And, 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 the, and, this, and the tragedy is that it's not necessarily like one person or one bad apple. It's, it's a systemic flaw. It's an actual fundamental inherent set of flaws that have been building up within the system itself. And I mean, we experienced this viscerally because um, when our family members got sick, one well, family members, I mean, immediate family members, mother and father, I mean, they all, they, they both of them in their, in their uh, individual way got very sick um, and had never been sick, never been in the hospital, but to, to, just to cut to the chase, we got thrown into that maelstrom known as hospital medicine in America. And I mean, it's one thing to know it from the standpoint of the physician. It's another thing to actually experience it from the standpoint of the other side of the healthcare system. And I mean, I already knew I was in the healthcare matrix before all that happened. But when that happened, I mean, we were overwhelmed as a family of mostly physicians in terms of like everything that can systemically be flawed in healthcare and in, in, in hospital medicine. And the, the, the tragedy is that we as insiders of that healthcare system could barely hang on at times. But you look around at people who don't understand, they're not on the inside, and the stuff that's happening to them, which is then couched as, oh, we did everything we could, and, you know, we, um, you know, um, we, we, we did our best, uh, but you know, unfortunately, these things happen. Like they don't even know what's going on. They're they're not even aware. They're not even privy to all the things that are systemically flawed, right? Again, not that they have a bad doctor or not that they have a bad nurse, but it's the entire system that is moving in a certain direction, which COVID and and the, and the narrative around COVID has accelerated, which it, which if we as those inside the system or even outside the system ultimately do not become aware of and speak about freely and openly. I mean, whatever the system's merits are that are left are going to be gone. And that to me is the, is the real try. People are getting hurt on a daily basis due to systemic flaws in this crazy distorted healthcare system that we have in America. So you experience an element of that. That's that, that to me is what you're, that's what you're describing. Well, it sounds like it. I mean, I was, I was horrified and I was completely shocked because as, as I was saying, my expectations were high tech, attentive, perfect, you know, this perfect machine that yeah, maybe. I, yeah, I, I don't know what they were feeding you when you were in Russia, but yes, <laughs> that, was, that, was a, that was a marketing, that was a marketing job. I mean, I, I just had this idea about American medicine because, I mean, I never really interacted with it much. 
So my idea was, especially when it comes to like things like surgeries and like urgent care and acute care. I mean, and I'm sure again, the surgeons were marvelous. Mm-hmm. I mean, like they did amazing, amazing, amazing jobs. Yeah. And, and, and to a large degree, that acute care is awesome. I mean, we, you know, that acute care that happens in, in hospitals around the country is, is amazing stuff. When it starts to get more um, nuanced uh-huh. and, and gets into more of like all of the complexity and the beautiful uh, interconnected relationships that happen in somebody's health, like forget about that. <laughs> I mean, it, that, it, it, it's, in a sense, it's like, it's not just that people aren't interested in it. Of course, people are interested in it. It's that there are powerful players. I mean, I would call it an oligarchy that doesn't want the public at large to actually have that kind of health. They don't want it because it doesn't make them money. Well, it's almost, it's so painful to think about it in those exact sobering terms that in some way, perhaps the same human beings who benefit from selling us various expensive medicines, like they also benefit from making us sick because like through selling us maybe bad food or, or, or like th- that entire system. So when we're not quite okay and always need to buy something, it kind of works for them, not so much for us, but because it is at this point, almost the default state of a human being, and nobody's perfectly healthy. Mm-hmm. Thinking about yeah, and we and we just accept that. Like, it, I mean, if you start thinking about it, like, what is health? And of course, you know that can go in many different directions. But like, when did we actually just start accepting that? You know, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, stroke, obesity—that these are just like. Um, defaults. I mean, they don't have to be defaults. <laughs> and, and I'm not saying that, that, you know, it's, it's, we can, with the flip of a switch, get rid of them. Of course we can't, but they are addressable. It's, it's not like, it's not like they're like, there's just, you, you know, you can't go there. They're just totally not addressable. Can't address any of these things. That's not true. We know that's not true. And of course, those are the comorbidities that make it more likely for somebody to have severe illness from COVID. So, so we've created this narrative that is just exclusively about the virus, infectious pathogen, are not, no treatment whatsoever in terms of early treatment. Don't go there. We'll, we're going to suppress all that uh, uh, nonsense, right? But then ultimately, the savior of all of this is vaccination. It, something that is specifically going to address infectious pathogen and ultimately transmission and, and illness from an infectious pathogen. But of course, the other the reality of it is, and nobody can deny this, that in that storyline of COVID is also hypertension, diabetes, obesity, all of the things that make someone chronically ill. I mean, is anybody even talking about that? I mean, like, like, or even giving any like lip service to that? Like, I, I mean, I'm not asking you to solve it, but like, what? Why is that not even at all on the table in any kind of mainstream conventional media or uh, uh, public health? I mean, of course, public health has talked about it before, but not in this context right now. All it's just about exclusively how are we going to address that infectious pathogen? That to me is not a way to actually look at health in its totality. Well, for sure. And I can't help 
but make another concept because, well, I mean, I recently wrote this story about the word vaccine or the V, v word as yeah. I called it. <laughs> I, read, I, and, I, I, I read it. It was and, excellent. Thank you. And well, for one, this product by their own standards does not really stop transmission or infection. And that in itself, just, just that alone, by their own definition, I mean, like, we can stop there because if it doesn't do that, then the whole tower falls. And to me, and I mean, I don't, I don't ask you to comment on that because again, people have different opinions. And well, I mean, well, I'll just, I'll just bracket and or pause for a second and and just endorse what you're saying because the manufacturers themselves have not endorsed that this vaccination actually stops transmission. They haven't endorsed that. They specific, the, the purpose of the vaccine is to mitigate against severe illness, according to the manufacturers. The manufacturers have not endorsed that it stops transmission. Now we can, we can go on to say, does it actually stop transmission? Maybe the manufacturers didn't study it enough, therefore they couldn't say it. Okay, granted. And then we can go on to, does it actually stop transmission, right? Like, to what depth are people asking that question? It's an open question, actually. Does it stop transmission? And, and you know, I, and I have some thoughts about that, but I'm sorry to interrupt you. I mean, no, 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 no worry about that. I mean, like, if you want to speak your thoughts, then please do, and, and then we can decide. Well, so, so, here, so here's a thought, okay? Just, I mean, these are just thoughts, right? Free and open exchange. So I've been asking, I've been floating this question to just people and just, you know, asking them to respond with whatever they feel. So, you know, we're being, so, you know, vaccination came aboard in December, I guess mid-December or late December, I can't remember, 2020. Okay, and then um, case rates are going down, hospitalizations going down, deaths going down, okay? So let's just accept all that. Let, 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 let's ex accept the facts as they're given. Vaccination, case rates going down, hospitalizations going down, deaths going down. So, you know, my first question is, well, how does that happen? Well, I'm just, I mean, I'm just going to kind of think logically through, biologically through. Well, I mean, how do you stop case, cases? You have to stop transmission, right? I mean, like there's, the virus doesn't teleport to somebody else. It actually passes through and goes to somebody else. So the, the way you're going to stop case rates down is, is, is to stop transmission. Now, how do you stop transmission? I mean, how, how, do you, how, how do you transmit a virus to someone else? Well, I mean, it's through sniffles or coughing or droplets or aerosols or something, right? So something from you is getting over to that other person. Now, what does the vaccine apparently do? The vaccine reduces the severity of illness, right? So less, less sniffles, less cough. It makes the symptoms milder. Um, and, uh, and it reduces the severity of those symptoms. So if, if, if the vaccine is causing case rates to go down, the, the plausible mechanism by which it's doing that is it's reducing symptoms, right? Okay, so the less symptomatic you are, the less likely it is that you're gonna transmit infection. That's the way the case rates are coming down. Here's the, here's the rub. Now, wait a minute. We were told all of last year, and even now, that asymptomatic people transmit infection. That's not compatible. You, you can't have both ways. 
if asymptomatic people transmit infection, then how are the case rates going down? Because when you get a vaccine, I mean, it's not like the virus bounces off at you at that point. It's not a sterilizing antibody that's happening. I mean, a person is still liable to, when they're exposed, get infected. What the vaccine is designed to do is to mount a more, is a quicker, more robust immune response so that you don't have as many symptoms and you don't get as sick. That's how this vaccine um, works. It doesn't, it's not a force field around you. So people are still getting infected. So if the case rates are going down and people are still getting infected, they're they're, they're presumably going down because people are not asymptomatic, which means, which implies that asymptomatic people don't transmit infection. But see, if you, if you, if that becomes in question, then now that undermines all of the stuff that was going on in 2020, like the lockdowns, the constriction. If asymptomatic people truly don't transmit infection, then, then that changes the entire narrative at that point. So you have to hold on to that. But to me, like, how are those two things compatible? Biologically speaking, if you just think through the logic, they don't seem to be compatible. You can't have it both ways. Well, it seems like the entire story of 2020 onward is that things are not supposed to make sense and supposed to be taken on faith. But actually, from what I know, they changed the way they count cases. And now actually, no, well, no longer, as of May, the CDC no longer tracks. Yes, that is truths, true. Which is very interesting. Yes. I mean, see, that's the thing. Like, we can go there too, but I'm just, I'm just going right. to take the facts that you're giving me. Right. And I'll just take them as given. And I just, I just want to use logic to the best of my ability to come to a conclusion based on the facts you're giving me. Now you added a wrinkle, which is that are the case rates actually going down or are they going down because we're just not counting them? Which, which is what the CDC said. You are correct. The CDC said that we're not gonna count cases of people who got vaccinated. We're only gonna count hospitalizations and deaths. Yeah, the case rates will go down if you do that. Of course they will. And I think it's even worse than that, but it seems like, again, the, the massive scale of, let's say, untruths or information withheld or information suppressed. And the, 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 the scale of it is so massive that it's hard for any regular human being to just accept that the fact that they are lying to us here and also here and also over there and also over there and also over there. And essentially this entire tower, wherever you poke, you find that it's not quite what they're saying. And accepting it as a state of one's life and a supposedly democratic country and all that, like with an ego of a Western person, I think that's tough emotionally. So I well, don't- and then, I mean, the, the, and then the words that they use for, for that, like just kind of visceral feeling like, am I being lied to? Am I getting a con job on me? Something doesn't fit. They weaponize that with words. You're an anti-vaxxer or, or, you know, vaccine hesitancy or whatever the, you know, the word of the week is, disinformation, misinformation. There's a weaponization of terms to basically shame you into not thinking that way. Something that you're just viscerally feeling like something's off about this. But of course, they have to, they have to, they have to massage the narrative in, in a very constrained window. Otherwise, you know, the, the jig is up. So 
Well, I think the jig is up, actually. And well, there's a word for what you described and what I described just five minutes earlier. That's gaslighting. And I think that's what's being done. And one of the reasons for me, while I was not too scared for very long, so I snapped out of this extreme crisis mode, maybe a few weeks after it all started last year. And... But the reason for that was essentially that the messaging did not feel right at all. Because let's say medicine and biology, you know, I can have my theories, like my peasant theories, but I'm not an expert in that area. But just by how it was messaged, my radars went all off almost Mm. immediately. And the reason for that is because I did, I was in that abusive relationship previously. And that mechanism where okay, whatever you think, it's clearly wrong because there's something wrong with you. When entities, and let's say all politicians all over the world, except for the ones who have an interesting tendency to die recently, but everybody else, (laughs) everybody else, all of a sudden, every politician decided to be honest and to care about their people and to care so much that they would throw billions and billions and billions of dollars to save their health, even though it gets mostly funneled to corporations, but nonetheless, they just found souls and became honest to such degree Then we say, no, 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 we don't want it. Thank you. I'm going to take care of myself. They say, no, I'm going to give it to you for your own good and you don't have a choice. That is so peculiar. And, <laughs> and they're the same entities. I mean, there are people dying of pollution from all those things. And typically, the, the, the politicians would usually side with the polluters and the factories and the corporations. That's kind of a trend that I don't think anybody can deny. All of a sudden, they decided to care about the people. And... It's not like people were given, I don't know, like free chemotherapy before because cancer was killing so many people. That never happened. Well, so I mean, let's steal, well, let's steel man this though. Meaning, I mean, the, the counter to that is going to be, well, yes, there's pollution and politicians can talk about that too. However, in this particular case, this has a contagion aspect to it right? Mm-hmm. So this has the possibility of exponential growth, which, which is altogether different. You know, people that say, well, we're more likely to die in a car accident than, uh, you know, to get COVID. There, there is a, there's a fallacy there, which is that, yeah, you're individually more likely to uh, perhaps you know, be in an accident. Let's just take these at face value. But there's no contagion aspect to that. It's not like, you know, th- that there's a likelihood that a thousand people are going to be in a car accident um, uh, all at once. Um, I heard, you know, Nassim Taleb say this, uh, the, the uh, statistical um, probabilist, I think that's the right word. Anyway, he was describing that it's different, like what you apply to a given individual person is different from what you apply to an ensemble, especially when there's an exponential risk to it, right? So that's the counter. Like, no, we have to do something about this because this has the potential for exponential growth. My counter to that would be um, cultural memes and bad cultural memes and bad narratives also have exponential growth. 
right? Like when you, when you lock down entire populations and you say it's in the name of, you know, A, B, and C, and, and you're not taking the ramifications of that, because that can be exponential too, in terms of the, 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 the amount of damage that can be done, that, that, has, a, that has a risk too. And, and, and to add on to that, the, the biggest worry I have is not so much COVID, because I think we know, I think we've learned thus, you know, to now, I think we know how to deal with COVID itself. The biggest concern that I have is the response to COVID in the sense that like all of these draconian authoritarian measures are ultimately the thing that I feel is going to pose the most existential risk to humanity itself, right? And that's where you're getting into transhumanism and these topics. Like that is a bigger threat to humanity than this infectious pathogen is. That's my feeling. Well, I, I, have, I have the same feeling. And I fear that this was not really a health response. And that truly bugs me because, I mean, this is not a pleasant feeling to have. And I would very much want to have the ability to assume kind of a clean world that, yes, corruption, yes, greed, yes, you know, whatever, collusion between the corporations and politicians, but generally speaking, a clean world where nobody's trying to march us towards transhumanism. It's a much easier perception of the world. Unfortunately, my research does not allow me to accept that. Mm-hmm. And I want to stress again, it's not remotely pleasant. I mean, clarity and the sense of truth are pleasant because no matter what's happening, it's much better to understand what's happening and kind of accept it face on or try to deal yeah. with it or position yourself totally. without That's any fear. But, but nonetheless, I would far prefer a world that is generally kind of the world that I used to believe in you know, years ago, that is generally clean. And yes, they're corrupt politicians, they're all those wars, they're all those things, but nothing too crazy. But unfortunately, mm-hmm. the deeper you dig, when you read documents, contracts, agreements, plans that are all public, they're all like, you know, they're all public knowledge, really, if one wants to read them, it does not seem like this was a response to anything. And all the measures, because the digital IDs were in the works for much longer, the mandatory adult vaccinations were a golden dream of, you know, an association with the WHO even before this pandemic the idea to introduce a very intensive schedule of adult vaccinations did not come after 2020. It predates it. Google's attempt to digitize all education and to replace essentially the physical classroom or at least eat a huge chunk of it, that's something that they were desperately trying to do prior to 2020 with some success but certainly nowhere close to where they got in 2020. Their desire, Google and similar companies, desire to go after medical data and to essentially eradicate privacy as such and privacy of medical data, that's also predating 2020. And they were trying very, very hard with limited success because medical data had certain cloak of protection. Now they've marched 15,000 miles into the area where they are actually having access to that. And they have their hand in tracking and tracking tracking of this. Anyway, so it seems like my intellect 
does not allow me to believe in that clean world where all of that just happened. It just, I want to. That's significantly more pleasant. But when I approach it just as a researcher, I cannot just unsee what I have seen or unlearn what I have learned in this case. My intellectual honesty doesn't allow me. Right. And, and, and that's extremely unpleasant. And yet, I think it's very important to not have fear because fear is the first reactive state. If you think, oh my God, all this horrible thing is happening and it's actually far more coordinated than what my own brain wants to accept. And it's so vast, but then reality confirms it. But then I think, well, I've already gone through that sort of process of like I'm not afraid anymore I mean it's good to know what's happening it sucks that right. it's happening and like sucks big time but right. so be it I'm here a role to play and the truth shall prevail well I mean I, I mean I think you're touching on the, the reality that some sense making is better than others right so I mean not all sense making is equivalent so you're you're based on your experience and cultural and historical background and intellectual training and heart and soul and eros all of that's coming into play and 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 having you make sense of what you're seeing in a way that you know approximates your best effort at, at the truth but to but that is the exercise. I mean, we we all have to be honest about that of wherever that takes us. And 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 it is. I mean, I think it is the case that for many people, they they don't want to practice that muscle. I mean, they they just. I mean, and and you know, maybe that muscle atrophies at that point. I I don't think it's gone. I think every human being has the capacity in them to 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 sense make. Um, but I mean, you have to practice it, and and you have to be in the midst of fear. Um, you have to have this internal curiosity and um, uh, dedication, I guess, to say, I'm going to go wherever this takes me. I mean, it's just because that's like, what else can I do? It's a choiceless choice at that point. Go go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say like, and, and I think in terms of integrity, where where you must take a stand is is to call out the process like if you see that the pro, that there's some lack of integrity in the process that that's where everybody i think has the responsibility to take, to take a stand the outcome your conclusion on the outcome or your interpretation of the outcome may be different but if but there's an issue with the process that lacks integrity we all have the responsibility to call that out well unfortunately Calling it out has professional implications. And I think this is the reason yes. why so many people, and that's the, the existential, existential, existential issue that people had to deal with well, always, really, through the good times and the dark times. Because <laughs> yes. if everybody spoke out today, everybody who sincerely believes something fishy is happening, if everybody just collectively decided, okay, what well, I'm going to say it out loud you know what, I think something fish is happening, then that would get such tremendous power. But if everybody assumes that if they do that, they'll be the only one, and then they have to deal with all sorts of unpleasant consequences, and then nobody does it, and then the rest never gets to find out what other people think. Mm -hmm. 
And that's how history is made. Yeah, I mean, that's how that, that's what's happening to me right now. I mean, well, I, I know for a fact because because of private exchanges that I've had that are that are you know uh, in parallel to the public exchanges that there are people in my own you know collegial community that feel exactly that they just I mean they're just they don't feel that they're in a position to publicly state what they're feeling privately and and you know they're afraid of um, you know being the first mover or being perceived as the first mover and, and at some point it's like I mean as this evolves. Um, I mean, I'll have to find out, well, who's actually willing to actually take a stand in, in the, in the way that they can in the scenario that they're currently in. But at some point, like, you know, that's what, that's what you got to find out. In my case last year, I made the decision to be outspoken about my views in April of last year. And it's not like I was particularly shy before that about life, but that was a very special case because you know, I was thinking about consequences and that I would become an outcast, but I just could not not be, be outspoken because I thought about, okay, if it's Nazi Germany and everything that's happening and you look back at it from, I don't know, 50 years after and everything is so clear. The right yeah, side of history yeah. is so I mean, clear. Yeah, I mean, the hindsight is twenty twenty. It's really easy to second guess and Monday morning quarterback things after the fact. But that is the, that's the real um, task. That is the real inquiry. In the moment that it's happening, you know, in the midst of it, how do you make sense of it, A, and B, how do you respond? <laughs> that makes, that's going to make all the difference in the world at that point. And, 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 and getting like, getting deeper and deeper for me, it's like a fundamental question is like, what does it even mean to be a human being? What, what is a human being? How do we want to define humanity? Is it all the stuff you were talking about in terms of algor algorithmic decision-making and you know, auto automatic, automatic uh, uh, thoughts and robotization and AI and machine learning? Like, is that what it means to be, hu to be a human? Or is it something else? And I mean, you've been touching on this in your latest writings. Like, you know, I, I think that we all have to, um, we all have the opportunity, at least, to coalesce around what I think is bold-faced truth that and the essence of humanity, humanity is love itself. Like that, I mean, that we are built of love. That's that's how, that's what that's the substrate that they were that we're made of. So from that first principle, what then derives from that first principle? Does all of this stuff that we're dealing with now derive from that, or or is something else? And then what is my agency? What is my ability to express myself, and then also connect with other people and express ourselves collectively? How can we manifest what we think it means to be a human being? I mean, to me, that's just the essence of, 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 of it all. You know, something just occurred to me in a clearer way than before. And I'm just going to try to say it. I mean, I have no idea what's going to come out. But I think, well, for one, we've been intimidated and made scared of feeling and expressing love. Because in our culture, it makes you ridiculous because it's not pragmatic. It's not this, it's not that. 
But furthermore, I think in our interaction with other people, we are so conditioned to view other people as dangerous. They are either going to con us or try to possess us or try to somehow do some kind of harm onto us that it is significantly safer or more practical to just not act on love and to assume that they're going to either sell us something or con us or possess us or somehow not respect our soul. And we are all like walking pieces of trauma and potential for love. And I think that might be the choice towards, I mean, if you choose love, you choose essentially to be a creator of this world mm. and to take chances mm -hmm. and to express yourself. And if you choose to be reactive and protective, then at some point you're going to face the emptiness. But it, it is so tricky because the truth is that a lot of people are broken and a lot of people actually do try to con you or possess you or do all those things just because they are broken. Mm -hmm. And this balance is such a fine, like divine, mysterious line to walk. And I know that in my own life, I just deal with that with the actual like, existential conundrum where I have worked very hard on accomplishing certain, I don't even want to use the word clarity, but kind of I, it is very important for me to do things in spiritual purity as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And it is of critical importance. I do it for myself where it is very clear that doing things from spiritual purity is, well, really the only option because that's what we're born for. And that's what generates happiness. And that's what- Yeah, and, and um, I mean, I think you'll 100% agree with me in terms of clarifying what you mean by spiritual purity. I would gather that what you mean to say on that is not spiritual purity in the sense of following a certain set of um, edicts or- uh, a certain set of um, uh, um, rigid principles, but deeper than that, like the like spiritual purity, and this is what it means to me as well. It's like, what is the essence of who we are? What is the essence of this universe? And I, I'll amend one thing that you said that has everything to do with COVID and medicine. It, 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 I mean, like our response to this crisis is completely dependent on our, um, uh, the way we express what you're describing as spiritual purity. I think those are intimately connected. They, they can't help but being connected. Well, it is connected to everything. The society is traumatizing people horribly and conditioning all of us to assume that doing things from love is idealistic at best and somebody's going to inevitably abuse it and somebody so it's just like it's just mm -hmm. too dangerous to do th things that way that way and in some ways it is a rational viewpoint because it's true a lot of people are broken and they will try to do it to you and it, in any like in personal and professional in any any sort of interaction but I think that the, the challenge, and especially the challenge of our culture of people living today, 
is to find that line where you're brave enough to do things from love and find a way of when you interact with broken people, you find a way to manage it, mm-hmm. to not get broken yourself or protect yourself mm-hmm. or heal them if it's the right thing to do in any particular case. But that is a far more complex approach to life than just, okay, I do everything from love and, yeah. you know, but then I mean, like, that's, that's the mistake I, w- I was making over and over and over again. For well, many I mean, years, that's, because, yeah. I mean, yeah, like when you, so I think that, you know, when we express this word called love, w- there are very narrow definitions of what that conveys, right? But I mean, I know you're not, and, and I'm not talking about some new agey, um, you know, free right. love, you know, uh, kumbaya, flowers in the, in, the, in the garden, which is all beautiful, by the way. <laughs> I'm not meaning to diminish that, but I mean, love is, is that and more, right? And, and I think the narratives are really important here. I mean, we, we've completely, de- in this modern and postmodern society, we've, we've just completely in this very, you know, nihilistic postmodern way, which of course, postmodernism loves, um, ironically, uh, we, we've deconstructed away what love even means to the point where at that point, like because of our very narrowed uh, feeling of what love conveys, through it's through that lens that then we then say, oh, that's too idealistic. Um, you know, that, that can't be practically followed in this world. That's a bunch of nonsense. That's actually a bunch of nonsense. Let me give a concrete example of how I think love can be practiced with regard to this particular situation. And this has come up in, in our, in our you know, dialogues. Um, my feeling here is that I am not going to discriminate on anybody on the basis of their vaccination status. I, 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 that is a, that, that is a, that's malice to me. That, that is anti-love. If, if I'm going to express love in medicine, I don't care if you're vaccinated. I don't care if you're unvaccinated. I don't care if, you know, somebody's walking in who's unvaccinated, vaccinated. To me, my expression of love in medicine is I look after that person. If that person is sick, I look after them. That's what I'm charged to do. So this notion of medical apartheid, where we are putting this set of people over here and that set of people, over that, that's apartheid to me. That's, I'm going to use the word apartheid because that's what it is. And so my expression of love is to say, no, no, we are not going to do medical apartheid on this. Oh, good for you. And I admire you for your courage. It is the right thing to do. Yeah, so love is, I mean, love is, love is, love is not a pie in the sky, utopian, idealistic sentiment. Love is strong. Love is not weak. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a misunderstanding of what love is. If you think love is, is weak. Well, that is what drives us. Like, ultimately, I think that is really the force that we have, even against this reform, because I don't think we can beat them with money, because they have probably trillions of <laughs> yeah, times. It'll be, it'll be hard to defeat them with money. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, like, they have that on us. And they have the politicians in their pockets, and they have the media in their pockets, and 
it is, of course, far more complex because it comes in confusion and individual journeys and all those things. I mean, it's, it's extremely complex. But nonetheless, in very practical terms, they have all that on us easy. But I do think that love is such a powerful force. And if only people, you know, regular people, practical people, you know, poor people, rich people, if, if, if we gave ourselves permission to actually act on love genuinely, not the fluffy, you know, somewhat fake concept that we were fed as a replacement to, mm -hmm. you know, fill the void. Not that, because that's not real. But the actual love that is, you know, strong and it, it really is a great power. And if many more people realized that it is valid to feel it, it is valid enough to act on it. And it is actually good. Like it's satisfying. It, 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 is, it is satisfying, it is good, it is pleasant. Once you deal with all the pains and internals and the heat, I mean, like it is, it is so satisfying. Now words describe it. And if we give ourselves the permission, so no reformists are going to be able to do anything to us really. And if every choice, like love and courage, they're extremely interrelated because courage is really not possible without love because sometimes there's no practical reason for courage unless there's love. Mm -hmm. And it's just, I think that something that a lot of people don't realize because maybe they have not experienced, you know, what I call it, they haven't seen the face of the machine yet. Mm. So what I have discovered and what's giving me courage is the fact that I have, in very practical terms, found out relatively early in life that not that going away from reality or trying to pretend that things are, are something different from what they are actually has very, very painful practical consequences. So we can talk all day about philosophy and lofty things, but ultimately, like, I know that not dealing with reality hurts tremendously. Mm. And... I don't think that it is in human path to ever avoid reality. Like it catches up to you. It can, can catch up to you on your deathbed or significantly earlier. And it depends. But those people who died in ventilators, they saw the face of the machine. Mm. Just unfortunately, they saw it alone. And at the point when they could not even tell anybody about it. Mm -hmm. But that nobody escapes. And I think it's only love that allows us to actually walk this life on our terms because everything else is reactive everything else is reactive and there's lots of good things in life i mean obviously but love as a principle that makes you the co-creator of this world well that's beautiful and what love is the driving force of everything allows you to see and then see and um, embody and, and uh, you know, express yourself in is something that I think is relevant to, you know, this, this whole discussion about mandatory vaccines and COVID and response, which is the, 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 the why of it, like why, why, are, why are we having these stances that we're having? So, I mean, I've said this in other contexts, but a lot of people who might agree with us in many ways are having a stance on this 
from really kind of a libertarian perspective, like, you know, it's my freedom, my body, I get to do what I want with it. And nobody can force me to do anything that's that I don't want to do. So to me, like, I can honor that. I mean, I certainly have been in that camp in the past in, in terms of that kind of thinking. I think a deeper, greater, more impactful um, uh, mode to actually express the the stance is that is from love, which what, what love allows you to do is actually go beyond a mere libertarian, like my body, my freedom, my choice, nobody can tell me what to do stance and say like, I, I'm actually interested in public health too. It's not that I'm not interested in public health. In the name of public health, in the name of protecting minorities from harm, in the name of my deep desire for the collective good of society, that's why I'm taking this stand. That is why I'm so, you know, uh, that I'm so, you know, adamant about what I see going on in front of me. It's not from like a self-interested, I'm just in it for myself thing. It's quite the opposite. And, 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 and I'm able to express it in that way because, because I have this practice of having love drive what I do. That, and, and that I think is what love opens our, us all to. Well, that was very beautifully said. Thank you. I think the masters of political marketing language have really cornered this market <laughs> yeah. right now yes, because this whole community values, wink, wink, and compassion, that actually makes me very mad. Yeah, because they, I they think, created a false dichotomy. Yeah, it's just those, a false those dichotomy. words are supposed to mean something. They're not yes. empty words. They're supposed Correct. to have deepest sacred meaning. Yes. And they turn them 180. And people who don't know better who have not still seen the face of the machine. Yeah. They, I, that's what I think really happening because mm -hmm. in the American society, the sense of community has been wobbly for a while, right? And people, especially people who are relatively well off and who are very, you know, whose careers are working very well in the context of the machine, mm -hmm. they maybe have some guilt or something like something that when they're handed a value of compassion or community values, a part of them really wants to honor that because you know, they, 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 to compensate for something, maybe. And, and the machine is so good at hijacking words that once people get attached... The, mach the machine is nefarious at hijacking words. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, that, that's, it, that's its weaponry, but people get so married to their, you know, to the words that give them a sense of goodness. It's like, what do you mean this is not compassion? You're a Nazi. I mean... That is, like, to me, an ideology is a little bit like an addiction, or maybe not an not a little bit. I mean, that's kind of the same principle. But the machine really knows how to play that, mm -hmm. and I assume that the vast, vast, vast majority of people who are even militant about the mandatory vaccination in terms of they want it, they really believe that that's the public good, and well actually looking at facts would actually throw the towel completely off. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that. It's just that. Well, well you would like to think that most people are of that sentiment. I got to say though, that they're, I mean, in our exchanges, you know, I've been, I, I've been, uh, 
uh, framed by, you know, one person uh, who I will not name, um, a, a colleague, a physician that like, essentially like, we don't want your kind. Like if you don't want to follow this, uh, it, and you know, I think you're in the complete minority. I think he's wrong there, but he, he was like, we don't want your culture. This is not the culture that we want. We want you out of here. You're not our kind is what he's saying. Well, and you know, like that's in the public interest that like that, that that's a reflection of, you know, the collective spirit. I don't think so. He just wants me out of the club. That's what he wants. He wants his club and he wants me out of it. Well, that's a fairly common human emotion. Yeah. Unfortunately, I I, I think some of the people who are making this decision in terms of uh, mandating things, they just, they believe they're in a club and they want you out of the club. I mean, that's the thing that I I, I really want to push against, which is, you know, you're, you're doing the same thing. This idea of like, in the name of public health, in the name of the collective good, I mean, evils are being perpetrated in that name, right? And I mean, historically, that's been done. I mean, it's not like there's not historical precedent for this, but some of the worst evils can be done in the name of public good and collective health. And the response to that is not to dismiss public good and public health, uh, collective health. That's not my stance. It's to say, no, I'm going to hold you to the mat here. You are saying those nominally, but you're actually perpetrating an e- something that is, that is evil to humanity. And I'm going to call you out on it. Well, good for you. And again, it is completely illogical that if, say, the mandatory vaccination is about health, then how come the doctors and scientists, including extremely reputable ones by every criterion, how come they're immediately censored the Correct. moment they bring something up? Right. If anybody were worried about health, they would be welcomed. And I'd be like, oh my God, of course, Like, let's figure out the best way to keep healthy, to keep right. the public healthy. But it's right. not, it's the opposite of what happens. And then what is the motive? What is the motive? I mean, mm-hmm. then one has to just follow logic, right? Yeah, you have to, I was just going to say that. You have to, lo- that is the logical next question at that point. Well, if I see that this, there's a discrepancy here in terms of what is being purported to be done in the name of collective good and public health, well, if that seems fishy to me and based on what I'm seeing, then logical next question is what's the motive? Is there another motive? Is there another confounding factor that's pulling this conversation in a certain direction? That's just logical. And, well, I'm praying and waiting for a moment that a lot more people will start following this logic because it seems obvious and really not intimidating. And uh, I don't know. Again, it boils down to love and the real kind and maybe self-love because seemingly without self-love, people are very prone to religion of vaccination, like public health through vaccination. I mean, like that is that becomes a religion. And... I don't know. It, it is a tricky one because the problem seems obvious, but then the solutions are individual courage and individual choices. And then how do you wake it up in others? By example, and it seems like the only way really. And that's why I'm actually really admiring what you are doing and being outspoken about it in your profession. 
So that is worth great admiration. Yeah, I mean, I, well, and I would say that, um, you know, I mean, I, I'll speak for my profession. I mean, that's why I think our endeavor here um, against the machine is so important. So in one sense, you know, a person might think, well, you know, this is just a, you know, local brouhaha of physicians with the hospital system in Houston, Texas. Okay. I mean, so it's, you know, it's a parochial issue uh, amongst them. No, that's not what this is. It's far beyond that. I mean, this issue that we're contending with here has ramifications all across the world because if a hospital system as powerful as Houston Methodist is able to use medical staffs to affect their policy without the self-governance and professional sovereignty of medical staffs, that's going to happen nationwide. I mean, their hospital systems already uh, are mandating the vaccine for their employees now, UPenn, Robert Wood Johnson, I think Yurkins, this is for the employees. So they're following the track of Houston Methodist. They are then going to mandate it for their medical staffs. They are likely going to use the medical executive committees and the medical staffs to affect that policy. And then you've got employers who are going to say, okay, I see all the hospital systems doing it in the name of patient safety. Well, you know, employers just, they don't want to go against the grain. They're kind of part of the herd and they don't want to be liable for something. So as that narrative now shifts to like, well, hospitals are doing it, healthcare is doing it, it looks like physicians aren't saying anything about it, the employers will be like, well, I'm, I, I mean, I'm going to start mandating it too in the name of safety. And then pop, 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 you're going to have dominoes fall all around the country. And, and you know, we're seeing those dominoes fall, fall in other parts of the world, right? So we're the vanguard. That's what I've been saying. Like, I'm a physician. This is a political fight. I mean, we're doing a judicial uh, 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 action as a way to actually have a political fight, ultimately, and a political uh, move, movement, which is to say, we as physicians in the, in the world of medicine, this is our domain. If we can't adjudicate this, if we can't discuss this, if we can't come to a sensible policy about this, like everybody's watching us. We're representative of this whole conversation. If we can't do it, nobody's going to do it. And it's all, every, all the dominoes will fall. That to me is why our fight here is so important. It's going to have ramifications across medicine and into other fields of society. Amen to that. And I want to bring up a point that, well, the counterpoint that I disagree with, but that's in people's head. Because if the assumption is, okay, those things are safe and effective, and so, okay, so being mandated, but what's the harm if the hospitals do that? So maybe, yeah, maybe it makes you feel like, you know, the freedoms, blah, blah, blah. But if there's no harm, then, then what? And so what is your answer to that? Well, is there no harm? I mean, my answer to that is, uh, have you looked at the VAERS uh, website lately? Have you looked at that database? And you can argue, well, that's not a... I mean, that's just a place where anybody can report anything. It, you know, it's correlation, not causation. We don't know that that's actually causative. None of that stuff matters in this very simple, basic sense. That place, that system is there 
to pick up on signals. When you have a signal that is now in the several thousands, and it could be behind, and it could be 3x that or 5x that or 10x that, nobody knows at the moment, right? But that signal is already strong enough to where you are obligated to do your due diligence and say, as a default, I'm going to assume that there's an issue there and I'm going to need to investigate it thoroughly in terms of you know, what is the actual uh, relationship between what is being given and what people are experiencing. And if you want to massage that narrative, I, I mean, at that point, it's like, wh like what are you doing? I mean, there, there's a signal over there that was designed to pick up on it. And you're just going to massage that away because you just don't want to pollute the effort to, um, you know, do this, uh, this nationwide or worldwide uh, uh, action. You're thinking it's going to pollute that and people are going to be more reluctant. Well, damn straight, they should be more reluctant if that signal is real. I mean, that's the point of the whole thing. That's the point of the signal. So this notion that this intervention is free of side effects and it's safe and, eff safe and effective. That's another, that's another phrase that's been co-opted and then it's been petrified by design. It's been petrified so that if you keep saying it, safe and effective, safe and effective, safe and effective, safe and effective, over and over again, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna, you're gonna drill that into somebody's head and heart by design because you want a you know, universal uh, behavioral mechanism because you think that that is the only way out of this pandemic. So I'm just going to keep calling out various assumptions that you're making. Is it the only way out of the pandemic? Are there alternative forms that people can consider? What about people who've already had COVID? Have you, uh, ha, have you considered what might happen to that person who gets uh, you know, double doses, triple doses, quadruple doses? Um, how are you following up on, on, on the issues that the VAERS uh, databases and the databases of, of countries around the world are, are, are illustrating? I mean, there is nothing new about this either in the sense that we've done this before. And for signals that were much much less intense, we have, we, have, we have taken pause and really deliberated on what exactly we're, uh, are we doing and what are we advocating for. So, I mean, to me, it's just total nonsense to keep proclaiming that safe and effective, safe and effective, safe and effective for a relatively new technology that has had several months of follow-up thus far, which by the way, the very people who are studying in terms of um, messenger RNA, nanotechnology, uh, encapsulated particles, the very people who are studying that in 2018, 2019, and even before that, were actually deliberating in the research literature about safety. About, okay, like this seems to be causing an, an excessive immune response. Maybe we need to reduce the doses. So all those deliberations were going on in the years leading up to 2020. Where did all those deliberations go? They're still there. It's not like they haven't gone away. I mean, it's not like they're not real. And you can find it if you just go search the literature. People were discussing these things. Well, unfortunately, discussing those things publicly leads to an immediate career fall. Correct. And because if that is happening, why? Why? That's right. Simple question. Why? <laughs> it's just a very simple question. And, 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 and then you ask, and then you ask like, 
how are the people answering that why? And what is my sense making of how they're answering that why? Is that legitimate in terms of how they answer that? Or is, that, or is it not legitimate? Well, you know, I did a psychological experiment, well, with myself. A few years ago, I discovered uh, this method of trying to understand something by pretending that I have a certain viewpoint and then just sensing how I feel and how my body processes that. And it's actually extremely yeah. interesting. I highly recommend this method. And at some point, I did an experiment. I pretended that I'm just so tired of all this bullying, which, well, I didn't have to pretend there because I am tired of all this bullying and messaging around this product. But it is just such hard work to resist that bulldozer that, you know what, I'm just going to assume that it is safe and effective and just take a plunge. Just, mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to, you know, like, because I'm tired. I am tired of having all those, like, I, I'm really, really bothersome and there's a lot of pressure and I'm just tired. So, you know what, I'm going to stop being a conspiracy theorist. I'm just going to go ahead and do it because, you know what, and, and by the way, what I observed in my brain in that moment when I made this decision, you know, like something maybe feels a little bit icky, but I'm going to do it anyway because I just can't withstand the fucking pressure. I'm, just, I'm done. I'm, go I'm going to do it. And immediately my brain started explaining things very differently. Immediately, I did not want to go read the data that talks about damages or adverse effects or anything like that. Immediately, I wanted to turn on the mainstream news just because it would reaffirm me in mm. the fact that I didn't just do something potentially very harmful to myself mm. and I didn't do it because I'm smart. Right. So you and have to validate, you, you need something external to you to validate your resignation to something. <laughs> right. And that was extremely useful to me because I almost went into this, you know, it is actually a physiological reaction to self-betrayal and then all sorts of mechanisms come up in the brain to justify it rationally because then, yes, you are with the smart people. You're with this crowd of obviously smart people who all say that this choice is right and there's no danger. And all those crazy conspiracy theories, they might be sincere, but nonetheless, they're probably wrong because so many people say that it's safe and effective. And it just they, all those people saying that it's safe and effective, they clearly, they're not all murderers and serial killers. So obviously there must be truth to that. And the entire, this, an entire mechanism of rationalization showed up in my head yeah. with such strength. And assuming that if your surroundings at work or professional and your social circles are of that persuasion, that just makes that process easier. And, yeah. and that to me was a very, I don't know, very enlightening because I realized that like, oh my God, people really are subjected to all this pressure and me too. But I am yeah. lucky in a sense that, you know, I'm an artist, I write at home and I shape my social circles in such a manner that it's pleasing to me intellectually and emotionally. And I have no problem interacting with people who disagree with me, but I don't go out of my way to just constant. I mean, I, I don't need that. So I am lucky. Mm -hmm. But if somebody is constantly boiling in this pot where it's safe and effective, it's safe and effective and safe and effective, then really why would all the 
all my favorite television channels and all my favorite newspapers that I've read for years. Why would they lie to me? I mean, like, impossible. I mean, I think that's, I mean, in some sense, I think that's a form of adolescence. I mean, at some point, when you face the machine, you are you face a, a reality that then says, oh, okay, well, I got to grow up now. I mean, I have to mature into this reality. Like this reality exists. There's a machine. So that came to mind. The other thing that came to mind about safe and effective is physicians are not immune to this either, right? Like I'll take one example, myocarditis. So myocarditis is inflammation of the heart, right? And as many of us have now heard, um, myocarditis is occurring in kids who are getting the vaccine. Um, now, how is that um, <laughs> massaged? Well, you know, the kids aren't getting hospitalized and, you know, it's only about two or three days and it seems like there's no complications after they get the myocarditis. I mean, my brother's a cardiologist. Myocarditis is a bad thing. <laughs> when, we, when you learn about myocarditis, nobody minimizes myocarditis. Myocarditis in medical school, in residency, in fellowship, and on in your practice. Anybody who's getting myocarditis, that is not a minor, mild thing. I don't care if you weren't in the hospital. I don't care if you only had it for two or three days. It's myocarditis. It's inflammation of the heart. So even something like myocarditis in teenagers is being reformulated in the world of medicine, my world, to be like, ah, it's not a big deal. Myocarditis is not a big deal. Do you have any idea what that myocarditis is going to do years down the line? What if it has affected the electrical system of the heart? Do you have any idea? I mean, you can't, you literally can't tell me how that's going to affect somebody years down the line. You have no idea. I have no idea. You have no idea. But, but we do know that myocarditis and heart cells are very important and fragile things. Like you don't regenerate heart muscle cells. They don't multiply. Um, as opposed to, you know, other types of cells. So anytime that there's a signal that is myocarditis, that is not something you can massage away. And yet it is in the world of medicine, which is fascinating to me. Well, especially just fascinating in the, in contrast with how everything was interpreted last year, where if one hair fell off your head, and you had a positive test. <laughs> yes, that's right. There's a double standard. Exactly correct. You're not being consistent in terms of what you're formulating away and what you're not. So then you have to ask logically again, why? Why are you doing that? Why are you being so inconsistent? What's behind that? Well, exactly. And, well, I, I do hope that a lot more people start asking this question because... I mean, duh, at some point, it's just logical. Well, it was logical to begin with, but it's definitely very obviously logical now to be asking those questions. Yeah, and you, it's like, if you, if you make any dent in the narrative that's around myocarditis, or I just read this today uh, in Israel, um, they're finding that people who are vaccinated are still getting sick, which was, you know, obvious to me that that would happen. But, but, but they're like, oh, but they're not getting seriously sick. But then there was, a, there was a bit of a give and take in this article in the sense like, like the people who are getting sick, uh, who, are get, who have been vaccinated are still getting hypoxic, 
hypoxia means their oxygen levels are going down. But then the article frames that to say, well, they're getting hypoxic, but they're not actually going into the hospital and they don't need to be on oxygen. So, you know, they're not really seriously sick, <laughs> but they got hypoxic. I mean, so now we're supposed to reframe hypoxia as eh, no big deal, hypoxia. I mean, when you see this going on in medicine, again, what is this in deference to? Well, we said safe and effective. So anything we got, we can't say that hypoxia is not safe. I mean, then the whole safe and effective phrase starts to get undermined, right? And then the hidden assumption of that entire uh, article, this is the Israeli data that's coming out now because, you know, they've been I, I, vac the most vaccinated country on earth, I think. Um, but the vaccinated people are getting sick, uh, right? With COVID. So the hidden assumption there which the article actually kind of leaves unstated is that, oh, you could still get COVID when you're vaccinated. Like, so, so they just quickly make this kind of normalization that it, people who get can get vaccinated can get COVID. Now, I, I would venture to say that for the public at large, they didn't think that was going to be the case, right? They didn't think, many of the people who are getting the vaccine or being compelled to take the vaccine didn't think they were going to get COVID. They thought that vaccine was going to protect them against getting COVID. So now you're, you're creating like space now in this narrative of, okay, you're vaccinated, but you're, uh, you're getting COVID. We're not going to make a big deal out of that, but you're not getting that sick, right? Right. You're going to get nice COVID. <laughs> I know. It's like, <laughs> so I want to call him out on that. Now, wait a minute. I mean, now you're saying, are you, are you for the record acknowledging that people can still get COVID when they're fully vaccinated? But now you just want to say it's nice COVID? Like you, you keep moving the conversation. But I think uh, if I remember the Israeli data correctly, I think either half or more than half of hospitalized people with COVID actually are fully vaccinated. And I that's would probably, well, that's probably true, but I do want to, you know, to be true to that stat. I mean, there's probably very few unvaccinated people in Israel, right? So most of the people that are going to end up in the hospital just by sheer denominator, the denominator mm -hmm. of the unvaccinated is so low, let's just say in Israel, that most of the people who are, or at least half of the people who are going to end up in the hospital are vaccinated because there's just more of them in Israel as opposed to unvaccinated. No, I believe that was hospitalization for COVID. And I would have to double check and include the articles if, you know, if, if when I actually write it up. But I believe that was pertaining to specific COVID hospitalizations. And of course, I want to say it with a grain of salt because anything written about the subject, I mean, like, you never know. It could be with COVID, <laughs> for COVID. Yes. I mean, it's... And then well, it's tomorrow... interesting that you say that. It's interesting that you say that because I noticed this in the news articles here locally. Like, they're talking... You know, we have this Delta variant, right? It's right. going around the US and, you know, people are going into the hospital and so on. And, and they're saying, again, as part of the reporting, that... 99% of people or whatever it is, high 90s are, are unvaccinated with the Delta variant who are, in the, who are getting hospitalized. Okay, the thing I don't know, which I started to question because I saw in another article that they actually gave me more information is, I, they're in, they seem to be including in unvaccinated people who got one dose of the vaccine. So they're basically, they're using the word unvaccinated 
to signify not fully vaccinated. But, but it's important to parse that out. Do, when you say unvaccinated, do you mean people who have not gotten any dose of vaccine? Or, or are you in, throwing into that group people who've actually gotten one dose of the vaccine? Well, please, I mean, if you're doing that, I, I ought to know that. Well, why are you calling them unvaccinated? Well, Parse it out. Thing- yeah, another thing, and again, it is a case where I would need to go and verify that so that I'm sure what I'm saying is correct. But from what I believe is that people who get into the hospital will, for anything, they would get a COVID test. And if they test positive and they happen to be unvaccinated, they go registered towards that list. However, if somebody is vaccinated, they don't get tested. Unless I, I wouldn't be, sur- I wouldn't be surprised if that, if that's the if that's what's going on. I wouldn't be that wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I'm sorry to say, but I wouldn't be surprised. So, because I think that it seems very interesting, and again, I would have to verify that. But it seems very interesting that, according to Israel data, it seems like the majority of COVID patients in the hospital are fully vaccinated. While in the United States, they say it's the epidemic of the unvaccinated. And to that, I want to throw in that entire thing of how they were measuring breakthrough cases. And this story is not straightforward because it's officially not straightforward. So this not straight absence of straightforwardness does not come from me. But there was that directive a couple of months ago from the CDC where they said the way we are going to measure breakthrough cases is if the PCR test was 28 cycles and lower mm-hmm. ends after full 14 days after the second dose. But then the counter argument is that this is specific to that study of breakthrough cases, which they're not measuring after May anyway. So, but I mean, like that's another contradiction aside, but so the counter argument is this is specific to that specific study of breakthrough cases that's not broad, but then nowhere there is a description of how the broad distinction is being made. So if the data is just counted versus submitted to that specific area of study, Mm -hmm. like that's unknown to us. And whether anybody's even counting infections with uh, people who are fully vaccinated, well, we know they don't because they stopped counting them officially. So like well, every time of the tower, I mean, yeah, and, and yeah. look, and the reason you and I are in this position, you in academia, you in this, um, uh, in this, you know, uh, uh, military, academic, industrial complex, medical complex, you, you guys eroded the trust. If you didn't do that, maybe we would trust you in terms of the data that you're giving us. But you have given us little reason to believe anything you're doing. I mean, just think about the. Uh, the paper that was retracted from Lancet and New England Journal, All the right. two most, most, most prestigious journals in, in medicine around the world. How could that paper get into the New England Journal of Medicine and Lancet with all of the supposed peer review that those esteemed journals have? Like, how is that even possible? You guys eroded the trust. And now you're saying that, oh, no, yeah, trust us. Come on. It's ridiculous. I have to agree. And now the practical question, if people want to learn more about your lawsuit or learn how they can help you, is there a website that they can go to? Well, so there is a website. It's going to be a link, actually. Um, 
there, there's a link that's going to be for donations. So the link is nomedicalapartheid.org, nomedicalapartheid, all one word, .org. Anyone that wants to make a donation for this cause can go to nomedicalapartheid.org. Um, I love the name. That is a very good name. <laughs> I think it's quite, uh, quite uh, uh, relevant. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll come up with a way to post um, progress for those who are interested in following the, um, the progression of the case itself. Um, I will give you a link that maybe you can put in the show notes for the petition mm-hmm. itself. It's a very short petition um, that is, you know, th- three pages or so. So that's public information. Um, people can view that. I'll give you that link uh, for the petition itself. Okay. And then I, you know, I, um, I blog, I haven't blogged on the site uh, in recent times, but there's quite a bit of content. Um, and if, if people want to know my um, background and my framework in terms of medicine and healthcare, uh, both on a very personal level and as well as at a, at a systemic level, um, conscious-medicine com conscious hyphen medicine.com is where um, I have a lot of content and it's really really good well, content I, I hate this word but I know. It, it's really it's a ba- it's, it is a bad word I, I I have to I have to uh, take it back uh, content is a dumb word <laughs> <laughs> no it's it's really beautiful writing and Thank you. I, I'm actually I'm so glad that we crossed paths. Because I remember when I watched that video about iris in medicine, like that got my attention because I mean, like, this is not usually how medicine is talked about. And that was just so incredibly beautiful. So thank well, you. Well, I mean, it's just, I mean, Eros, outrageous love. I mean, we, in my um, framework and inquiry, I mean, this is a lot of what I write about. Um, and, and I'm not alone in this endeavor. I mean, we've got a lot of people um, in our in, in my um, domain who are thinking at many different uh, 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 domains in society through these lens through this lens. And so, I mean, you know, this drives this drives it all for me. I mean, th- this is this is why I'm doing what I'm doing here. This is what I feel is most important in medicine. This to me is the entire underpinning of the patient-doctor relationship. And, and without, without love, I mean, you got nothing. You, you have no patient-doctor relationship. You have no medicine. You have no trust. You have nothing. It's over. That is so true. And that's also applicable to life at large. You know, one of the things that I noticed last year and I was going to wrap it up because I asked you about the website and everything, but now like new, 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 new <laughs> thoughts came up. That's, that's what but, love does. <laughs> <laughs> but this is, this is amazingly a, a really beautiful things about this whole past year and a half is how real friendships got and how many new friendships of the authentic kind just came into my life because, you know, I, I am originally from Russia and the quality of human relationships over there just as a cultural default. The quality of human relationships was really solid just because people knew okay, the government is messing with us. Mm-hmm. Like there's really nowhere to go except each other. So for that reason, the friendships were really, really solid. 
And it yeah. seems like under pressure, whoever is doing this reform to us and those crazy measures, they actually evoke the most beautiful things out of us. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. under pressure, all the beautiful flowers started growing. Yeah. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I mean, we can talk about all of the bad stuff, the malice, the evil, the cynicism, all of which is important. And how are you going to respond? Right? <laughs> like, so, I mean, I'm ever the optimist. I mean, I, I believe that we as human beings are called forth at this hour to effect a renaissance. This is, this is our time. This is, this is a, just like, you know, Da Vinci and, and company effected a renaissance, you know, out of a crisis of the plague, um, we're called forth to effect a renaissance. And I, I truly believe that we have the power and the capacity to do it. And it's not going to be centralized. It's not going to be coming from authority, but we have the authority and we need to take, make our stand where we can and where we need to. And I think we're going to do it. And I, and I think that, I mean, that's actually what I was struck so much by your writing. It, it's, it, it's specifically what you just said. Like you would write about how, you know, back um, in Russia, there was a, I mean, in spite of the political constraints and the, you know, the, the tragedy, um, like you would communicate and, and commune with fellow human beings from a sense of like honor, respect for education, for study, for inquiry. And it was true friendship. Like it wasn't like networking, right? It was like- Oh, oh yes, like, that's the word. Networking is the word. Yeah, it was like, like this, like, like, and maybe it was because like this system, this machine was so warped, like we know it's bad over there. So therefore we're gonna come together and band as, you know, intrepid uh, human beings. Like, a, you know, like, like, that's the way that you actually came together, I guess, in a sense. And that's what struck me about, about, about your, um, your stories from, from, from you know, the other side of the pond. Oh, thank you. Well, I think human beings, ultimately, we have the same nature, right? Even though nations have different personalities, just like different people have different personalities. But human nature kind of doesn't really change when the borders are crossed, which is yeah. to say that we're not special when it comes to having corruption either. And right. <laughs> for sure. Well, but, that, but therein lies this, like the, I mean, this word has also been <laughs> massaged in many different ways, but I'll just use it in its basic term. Like therein lies the solidarity, right? Like it doesn't matter where you're from. I mean, this is just, this is, this is how we're built as human beings. And can we come together uh, you know, not as some kind of like, you know, globalist new world order way, but as a way of like the, the ignition and the, 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 the relighting of this fire inside all of us that has no boundaries, has no um, geopolitical constraints. This is us as humanity and as a universe. Like this is, this is us. This is how we band together. And, 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 you know, it shouldn't matter where you're from or what your politics are. It shouldn't, it, I mean, it matters. I'm not looking to diminish that, but in a sense it matters and it doesn't matter. It really doesn't. You know, the mystery here is that 
while the bad things can be easily imposed from the top, the good things require internal work and they cannot be imposed from the top because anything that is imposed from the top turns into a bad thing no matter how it started. And it's almost so beyond language. Like you cannot really become fully alive based on a set of talking points or a set of principles. It's not how it works and works far more mysteriously mm. and from dimensions that are outside of our language. Mm -hmm. And it just comes down to a sensory awakening in a way which, again, you cannot impose on a human being. It's really, it's kind of illegal in a way. I mean, yeah. you cannot do that because yeah. then it defies the entire purpose of our world. Yeah. And so we are bound to be patient toward even those who we think maybe we don't like the ideas or we think they're deluded or whatever, but we're just bound in bound to dancing this really complicated dance mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. while knowing that we can't see the full picture. Yeah. And at times it's extremely, you know, I, I, I want to feel the whole, I, I, I remember a feeling about the full picture and it's frustrating that I just can't see it. Right. But it seems like that is the world that's human experience and embracing the fact that life is a mystery mm -hmm. and we are co-creating it, but a part of it is something we just never know. And yeah. that's frustrating and beautiful. It's like you're ultimately vulnerable, like a baby mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it can be good, it can be bad, it can feel different, but kind of throwing yourself out there and just taking a dive and just seeing what yeah, happens. Yeah, and it's, and it's that, it, it's through that, it's through that um, evolution that the collective goodwill actually comes through. It's not coerced. It emerges naturally and organically we will take the proper collective action that way. We're, we're, we're in a much better position to take that proper collective action because it organically emerged. It wasn't coerced. I mean, when you have hepatocytes, liver cells, you know, at one point they were all just doing their own thing, but they, 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 they came together in mutuality and symbiosis and something emerged from that that is greater than the sum of each of the individual liver cell parts, which we call the liver, right? So each of those liver cells did not have the capacity that the liver as an organ has to do all the things that a liver does, but the liver cell wasn't coerced to do it. It wasn't forced to do it. it, it those liver cells came together in conjunction with other cells in a, in a mutually beautiful, mysterious way. And then this thing emerges that that is to me, like that's, that's a more just form of collective action. I agree with you. It seems like, well, again, words don't quite describe it, but you describe it in a very beautiful way. It's, and that's, that's where 
the tragedy of our culture or the pain of our culture comes into place because we are pounded on our heads to seek control because, and to some degree it's understandable, like having some control over things is obviously desirable, but on the existential level, we don't, we have control of our choices. That's true. We also have the capacity to rape. I mean, like we do have that capacity. It's possible to coerce, mm -hmm. but good things never come from rape. It's just not designed this way. I mean, yes, you can ac accomplish a mechanical result, but if we are trained to seek control as the primary marker of success and the primary marker of feeling secure internally, then this is what lays the foundation for the entire modern civilization. And I think it's that internal like we need to first find the mechanisms that opens us up to trusting the universe. And again, all those words have been hijacked a million times over. And I mean it in the most pure sense. Yeah. If that feeling is in place, then there's almost no need. Everything else is going to fall into place. That's but right. how we get there is, of course, the big mystery because the world is so broken. And to that a slightly related story. You know, I was watching Jeff Bezos as he just landed. Unfortunately, it finally found me and I watched it. But my <laughs> I, have, I actually it, haven't watched it yet. <laughs> I mean, like it, it kind of, it landed on my Twitter and I watched it, but... It landed on top of you, yes. Right. And <laughs> But there was some interesting thing, and I don't know if my observation is correct or not, but he starts talking and at first... He has this completely awe-stricken expression and he talks about like being one and all those things. And it seems like he looks like a person who just had this completely life-changing experience. Mm -hmm. And then within a couple of moments, he goes into this villain laughter. So what it looked to me, and again, I could be right or I could be wrong, but it looked like he had this strong experience and then habits took over. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, there's no moral to the story. I just found it striking that mm -hmm. observing that facial expression, yeah. how it went from yeah. awe to habit. Well, I, I think I, to me, I would say it points to the reality that that is the default nature of the universe, right? Like that is the default. I don't believe that survival and defense. I mean, that, that that's how it all happened. It didn't happen that way. The default nature was one of awe and mystery and the dignity of that, the honor of that. That is the default. That's the default. Yeah, I mean, and, and competition is a part of fun. Meaning Compe that- Yeah, competition. Yeah, it's, we, we, we play games. Yeah. We, we create games and we play them. I agree with you. I mean, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be void of spirit. I mean, no, that's a, that's a very recent invention. That's right. Yes. Well, on that note, is there anything that you want to say? Because you've said a lot of beautiful things and that's, I have to say, that's a very unusual conversation with a physician. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish it weren't an unusual conversation. I guess I will end on that positive note in that 
I think our profession is so unique in the sense that, I mean, people say and do the most intimate things in our rooms, right? In our, in our, you know, in our interactions with them, in our communing with them, in the hospital, when people are dying, when people are healing. I mean, it's just a beautiful thing that we do. And in, and in that intimacy, I, I, I want to do my best to represent the best of what we as physicians, as physicians can bring. I don't want, it's tragic to me that you would, you would have to say that this is so unique that I can have this conversation with a physician. I don't think it should be unique at all. And I know you don't think it should be unique at all. So whatever I can do to represent and move the needle on that is what I want to do. Well, thank you, Vinay. It was a wonderful conversation. I, I'm really happy that we had this interview. So did I. Thank you so much, Tessa. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.